0: We need more psychology, we need more understanding of human nature, because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger, and we are pitifully
1: unaware of it.
2: It is sometimes necessary to try out a disease aerosol on volunteers. In
3: 1951, at Fort Detrick, Maryland, construction crews built a hollow metal sphere four stories high. Inside, germ weapons were to be exploded, creating mists of infectious aerosols for testing on animals and people. They called
4: it the 8-Ball.
0: still allows the, the government to, to do open-air
5: testing, for example. On Americans without their consent, approval, or knowledge, even all under the guise of national security.
2: The volunteer children participated with the consent of their parents.
0: Such as Q fever, um, mycoplasma pneumonia, still allowed, chlamydia pneumonia, parvo virus, brucellosis. Brucellosis was very interesting. The disease has the properties of a
1: biological warfare agent. I mean, it creates um, destruction. It doesn't kill you, but it can destroy you and disable you. They were looking for agents that would do that. It mimics natural infection, so they can potentially spread it through insect vectors and claim that they didn't, you know, the government didn't do it as a natural epidemic.
0: As a scientist, I was extremely intrigued. As a victim, I thought, oh my God, what are we up against?
2: Clad in pajamas, the masked children are ready for the test. They do have something live in the blood that is not yet identified. It's called weaponization.
1: If you, de- if you declare it a biowarfare agent, then you can conduct, you can do any experiment you want for drugs. In the summer of 2007,
3: my sister Lori was afflicted with an illness that, 10 months later, had yet to be definitively diagnosed. But why, after a month of treatment, was Lori not getting better? of getting worse, once being told by a neurologist that everyone dies. We were all very scared of what was happening to Lori, but even more frightening was the possibility that this was something that could have been prevented,
2: or worse, that it was intentional in the name of science and national security. have to want to know. I mean, people, people don't want to think,
1: they don't want to be troubled. They want to watch TV and think that the world is fine. They don't want to think that their government is experimenting on people. Then they might have to do something about it.
5: So when we come out at the end of this road, we're going to see Plum Island. Lyme disease is one of those illnesses that unless you have it or you know someone who's afflicted by it, most people don't even know that much about it other than that it's caused by a tick bite. It's been referred to as the great imitator because it mirrors many other awful medical disorders including chronic fatigue syndrome, lupus, multiple sclerosis, arthritis, fibromyalgia, and Alzheimer's disease, just to name a few. Initially, Lyme disease causes a barrage of painful symptoms, including tiredness, unrelieved by sleeping or resting, insomnia, abdominal pain, nausea, confusion, mood swings, joint pain, recurrent headaches, fever, chills, dizziness, difficulty concentrating, and even impaired short-term memory. All along the sides of this road are some very thick woods and thick brush, and I'm just thinking how much we want to stay in the center of this path because I'm about sick and tired of weaponized ticks, But ultimately it can harm organs and systems throughout the body, including the heart, the circulatory, digestive, and reproductive systems, and the brain and nervous system. Despite the fact that many people don't know that much about it, Lyme disease is becoming pretty common these days. According to the CDC, Lyme was the sixth most common nationally notifiable disease in 2015 and the most commonly reported vector-borne illness in the United States, thought to affect some 300,000 people a year in this country. I'm from Missouri. We have a lot of ticks in Missouri, and I grew up in the woods, but it's not anything like you see here. The ticks are rampant. Strangely though when people attempt to get medical attention for Lyme disease a lot of times they're told that Lyme disease is really rare And that they probably have something else. Many times a person is forced to go through exhaustive medical testing for all kinds of other ailments And ruling all of those out before a doctor will even consider administering a test for Lyme disease, but I'll get to that later You could walk in there for two seconds step back out here. You'll be covered in ticks tiny little ones that are so small you basically need to go over your body for three hours the high-powered flashlight just to even find the things to get them off of yourself. It's a nightmare. There may be a good reason why doctors are hesitant to test their patients for Lyme, even when those patients are fully willing to pay out of pocket for the testing for it, and despite the fact that for some reason in this era of modern medical technology, the test for Lyme is still woefully inaccurate. For the longest time, the government has been implicated in and repeatedly denied any ties to the creation and proliferation of Lyme disease in this country, despite some pretty compelling evidence to the contrary. Lyme disease was not officially recognized or discovered until the mid-70s when there was an outbreak of what doctors originally mistook for juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in several southeastern Connecticut towns, including Lyme and Old Lyme, which is how the disease got its name. A cursory newspaper archive search revealed that the bacteria that causes Lyme, Borrelia burgdorferi, wasn't mentioned in print in newspapers until the year 1984, although Google newspapers came back with nothing at all. If you look at these towns on a map, you'll notice they are right directly across the Long Island Sound from Plum Island, which has been a government animal disease research facility since the mid-50s and doubled as a military biological warfare research facility, although the government denied it for decades. It's less than nine miles from shore to shore, the way the crow flies.
1: We're looking generally at the coast of Connecticut, where Old Lyme is located, just a short distance really across the Sound.
5: You'll also notice if you look again at those maps I showed earlier, the outbreak and concentration of Lyme disease in this country centers around that place. The CDC admits that 95% of cases of Lyme come from just 14 states, the majority of which are located around Plum Island. Plum Island's biowarfare history dates back to World War II and Operation Paperclip, a top secret government program to shield Nazi scientists from trial or punishment by quietly bringing them over to the U.S. and giving them new identities and U.S. citizenship in exchange for working for the government and military. One such Nazi scientist was Dr. Eric Traub, lab chief during World War II for Nazi Germany's Insel Reims a secret biological warfare laboratory on an island in the Baltic Sea where Traub worked directly under Hitler's number two, Heinrich Himmler. Traub's job included spraying viruses from planes over occupied Russia. Prior to the war, just by the way, Traub had been involved in Nazi activities in the US at Camp Siegfried on Long Island, just 30 miles from where Plum Island would eventually be located, while he was here on a fellowship studying viruses and bacteria at, of all places, the Rockefeller Institute. Plum Island was specifically named for Cold War biowarfare research alongside Dugway Proving Ground and Fort Detrick back in the early 50s when the U.S. biowarfare program and clandestine germ warfare trials first began. Eric Traub completed his Operation Paperclip duties working for the American Biological Warfare program from 1949 to 1953, during which time he consulted with the CIA, and scientists at Fort Dietrich before returning to West Germany in 1953 to run the country's own insel reams like experimental virus facility in Tubingen with the U.S. government's permission. Not only did USDA officials visit Traub's lab over there, but Traub also briefly worked for the USDA which oversaw Plum Island and throughout the 50s he was in regular contact with Plum Island's director, Doc Shahan. He was also at the Plum Island Dedication Ceremony in 1956 and visited the place at least twice after that in 57 and 58 when Plum Island's lead scientist Dr. Jacob Trom, retired and the USDA considered replacing him with who else? Dr. Eric Traub. Seems like they got the location idea for Plum Island from Insel Reams. Can't imagine who gave it to him. In the 1970s, Attorney John Loftus was hired by the Office of Special Investigations, a unit set up by the Justice Department to look into Nazi war crimes. He was given a top-secret clearance and allowed access to decades worth of classified documents. Loftus turned up records of Nazi germ warfare scientists who came into the U.S. and experimented with dropping poison ticks from planes to spread rare diseases. He also specifically mentioned in his book, The Belarus Secret, that he received information that suggested the U.S. tested some of these poisoned ticks on the Plum Island artillery range during the early 1950s when it was called Fort Terry. This story was further validated by attorney Michael Carroll in his book Lab 257. Carroll claims that not only did a source who worked at Plum Island in the 50s tell him that some of the workers purposefully released ticks outdoors on the island in 1951, and that they all referred to one of the scientists involved as, quote, the Nazi scientist, but Carroll says he dug up a box of 1950s USDA files from the National Archives vault that included three folders, two labeled Tick Research and one labeled E. Trob. All three were empty. Even more damning, in an article in the Journal of Degenerative Diseases, Marjorie Tetchen reported that 60% of chronic Lyme patients are actually co-infected with several strains of mycoplasma, the most common one being mycoplasma fermentans, which just so happens to be patented by the U.S. Army, and army pathologist Dr. Lowe. Today, the official story touted by government scientists is that the scientific evidence does not support Lyme disease originating on Plum Island. This is despite the fact that researchers at Plum Island were experimenting with hundreds of thousands of hard and soft ticks on Plum Island, where classified top secret biowarfare research was being carried out by the US military for decades, and that the first outbreak of Lyme happened right directly across the Sound from Plum Island, where thousands upon thousands of birds fly. And despite the fact that they've been forced to admit culpability in the outbreak of other types of viruses on the island due to the unsecured nature of these experiments, especially in the early decades. Experimental animals for which being kept outside in open air pins up through the late 70s, when a highly contagious foot and mouth disease outbreak on Plum Island in 1978 ended in the government being forced to put over 200 of its own animals to death. The US government, continues to pretend like it couldn't possibly have had a hand in Lyme disease. Then again, the U.S. government has repeatedly denied that there was even any biowarfare experimentation going on on Plum Island for decades, up until documents proving otherwise were published by Newsday in 1993. Meanwhile, Canada has been complaining in recent years of Lyme disease proliferating there due to migratory birds picking up black-legged ticks when they fly south into the U.S. for the winter and come back up there with them. Of course, I guess it would be a PR lawsuit nightmare if they did have to admit any culpability of this after decades upon decades of Americans suffering and probably dying from Lyme, which they would obviously avoid at all costs in the interest of national security. Earlier I mentioned that it's believed Lyme disease affects some 300,000 people annually in this country, but that number is basically meaningless because people are forced to go through a medical merry-go-round just to be able to get tested for Lyme disease in the first place. And then as Tetchen points out, many are only treated for it for a month on antibiotics. And according to prestigious Yale University, which has only been implicated in government dirty work for decades with Plum Island right in its own backyard, if the person still has Lyme disease symptoms on the 31st day of antibiotic treatment, they're labeled as having something else, whatever affliction the disease has mimicked in their body. In this way, if they die, they die of something else in the official medical record and in the statistics, not Lyme disease and they no longer get counted in the Lyme disease statistics. And that's after the patient goes through the rigmarole to even be able to get tested in the first place. My mother went through this when she lived in Missouri and was bitten by a tick and later found the telltale bullseye rash. Her doctor straight up told her Lyme disease does not exist in Missouri, and it wasn't possible for a Missourian to get it, and that it was all in her head. And even went so far as writing in her medical chart, that the patient is convinced she has Lyme disease even though her doctor apprised her of the quote-unquote facts. She ended up having to go to a different doctor and plead her case to him and essentially argue her way into even being allowed to get the test to begin with. This right here is how statistics continue to be toyed with even to this day in order to cover up an epidemic that is linked to government biowarfare research. If you've ever been to Long Island, you see the signs everywhere in parks warning you about ticks and Lyme disease. That place is absolutely infested with them. Decades of animal disease research and burying the wastes of that research on Plum Island itself has left the entire place an environmental disaster. And according to Carroll, repeated attempts to decontaminate the crumbling unsecure lab 257 failed and they finally had to build a whole new building on the island, but the thing is such a mess that USDA and DHS who jointly run Plum Island started asking about moving it in the last decade and you'll never guess where they decided to move the Plum Island Animal Disease Research Facility to.
1: Very creepy stuff and yet somehow they find a way to make it even creepier than Nazi connected bio research agents because they're about to move Plum Island or have already started to move it to Manhattan, Kansas, in the (laughs) middle of cattle and GMO crop country.
5: And Tornado Alley.
1: And Tornado Alley. So, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, how about everything?
5: Manhattan, Kansas, basically right smack dab in the middle of the country. That's right. As Congressman Michael Burgess pointed out at a September 2009 oversight and investigations hearing on federal oversight of high containment bio laboratories held before the Committee on Energy and Commerce, which was held a week after, by the way, the vote on the House resolution to move the Plum Island facility to Kansas, quote, the language of the resolution proudly touted that 45% of the fed cattle in the United States and 40% of the hogs produced in this country are in Kansas. Considering that hoof-and-mouth disease, which is the primary research being done at Plum Island, is a disease which can spread with devastating swiftness from humans to cattle and hogs, shouldn't we have done our O&I hearing on the scientific evaluations being done at DHS before we voted on a resolution saying that Kansas was the best pick? Gee, you think?
2: Yeah, a lot of people would probably say, so what? No big
6: deal to island of Dr. Moreau. Just a little genetic engineering. Mutants, little hybrid.
5: few diseases. Little
6: animal cells in our human DNA.
4: little diseases here and there. Yeah, no big deal.
5: Mm-hmm. Some 300,000 people a year in this country. I'm from Missouri. We have a
2: Alright, welcome to the War from TylerBloyer.com, the TylerBloyer.com live streaming podcast where I go through a series and things that I want to cover, uh, whatever comes to my mind and in a stream of consciousness sort of get that out into my website TylerBloyer.com and currently we've been working on the series The BioSciWar and today is the TikTok BioOp. Uh, we are now about five episodes deep five to seven, depending on how you want to count the first two things that I covered in the series, uh, which you can find on tylerblur.com. Let's just take care of a little bit of housekeeping here so I can not have that start playing. And we'll just go over to, uh, not that that's coming up soon. Got to get the buttons, right? Uh, The episodes in this series, again, I I think it sort of started out with getting ready for Human 2.0, then the total PSYOP awareness, then purpose and scope, commencement of hostilities, strategic psychological operations, double-edged developments, and now today we're on the TikTok bio-op, as I discussed last week. But we will be covering, uh, wrapping up a little bit of what I had uh, last week on the table that I wasn't able to get to. And yeah, last week was, there's a number of things that went on over the weekend and it won't go into detail, but it impeded me a little bit to execute completely when I went back and reviewed the material, but we're always improving here and appreciate the patience of those watching me fumble around in the control room here live, trying to get things going. Uh, for the most part, I won't give up unless the computer or the internet gives up on me. So, so far we've done all right at not having a complete cat, uh, catastrophe, you know, live on the show. So, Cassandra, she's in the control room today and a couple others in the audience. She's going to give me feedback if something goes wrong with the audio. And I have seen there's some uh, live viewers letting me know if there's something that goes majorly wrong. You saw the opening clip there. The first one will be in the show notes. It's not in there right now because I kind of found that toward the end of uh, me getting ready for this show and felt like it was a good, exciting intro to put there. We'll talk more about that. And then uh, Truthstream Media, some may be familiar with that with Erin and Melissa Dykes work, and they do excellent research, condensed, consolidated. Um, We're kind of in long form here with this commentary from me, and you get all these extra things that may not be wanted or needed, or maybe so. And then in the Erin, Melissa Dykes is more shorter and condensed, and it's a little bit of opinion piece. You can see where uh, uh, Melissa is coming from there as far as how she feels about ticks and Lyme disease. But Uh, I think also there's a lot to be said, and there's a lot left unsaid, and there's a lot of questions I have still. I'm not really positive exactly um, that the government created Lyme disease and weaponized that specific uh, spirochete uh, from, you know, maybe from getting that information from Unit 731. Maybe that's where they got the research from the Japanese biological weapons uh, programs going on in World War II, uh, that the you know that maybe you've never even heard about it and there's a reason why because there was a japanese holocaust type situation and uh, testing of biological agents on people that the military was doing and uh, we t- sort of turned a blind eye to that in, in exchange to get the technology or to keep a hush hush about maybe what we had going on that they they had known about so Uh, Again, there's a lot of that that goes on between countries, and we'll uncover that further as we go down the road, as well as the ties into Project Paperclip and the Nazi connection to all this, and especially even what we're talking about today with Plum Island or with the ticks uh, research and the bioweapons research in that department. So there's definitely more to be covered is the point. And uh, we're not going to be able to do it all here today. So this is sort of a part one of the TikTok bio op, and there's more to go into on these sort of anthropod or insect uh, weaponization research or you know defense research. Of course, <laughs> it's defense research. Uh, you know, in case in case the swarm of uh, you know biological weapons from another country, you know, we get attacked by that. We need to know how to react to this, right? So again, going back to the logic, the double-edged Uh, developments that we went into last week and dual use and uh, bioweapons research versus offensive and defensive, it gets into this endless, you know, wagging the dog situation where, you know, we we can justify testing, you know, bacteria, aerosol sprays on the coast of San Francisco or dropping ticks all over the United States, as we heard uh, Aaron or Melissa saying there in that opening clip. And we'll discover a little bit more about that today as we go down into the bio war front lines here today. And uh, appreciate those hanging in here with the live stream. Uh, Again, my premise, the thing I've sort of put forward and I'm willing to change on, again, I don't have it all figured out, none of us do, would be that there, you know, I guess I could say there could have been an accidental release of SARS-CoV-2, you know, gain-of-functioned virus that was uh, studied and and gain-of-functioned functions added to or allowed to, you know, encourage to uh, mutate in a particular way to become more virulent or more uh, contagious, basically, uh, and airborne as well, and There's some evidence that we uncovered in the last week's episode from 2008 and also a Lancet article back in like 2003. Uh, The British uh, Medical Journal, very prominent there in in Britain, and uh, went over how they're basically able to 3D print, you know, these uh, chimera viruses in a lab and sequence out the genetics and make that readily available, you could say, not as much as like a 3D printer, that's an exaggeration, but getting the equipment together and being able to essentially, uh, a, a person with malicious intent could create this virus and release it. Now, I err more, less on the side of that and less on the side of it being an accident, more on the side of this being a controlled sort of situation, a controlled release, getting out ahead of the situation being able to then clamp down and get the funding for the research, even you could just say in that way. And a lot would see that as a lot more conspiratorial. Um, this would be considered con, uh, similar to still, you know, 20 years after the fact, there's still people who will not investigate, not look into the possibility of something like 911 being anything but exactly what the official government story says that it is, and that there's no chance that there's any you know, other things going on there. There's no chance that the United States government would be involved in that at all. And then there's, there's other people who would have seen that immediately as soon as uh, witnessing the event based on, you know, not that they could actually prove it at that point, but that they could surmise based on what they had researched up to that point or based on their what they had understood at that point about how the intelligence organizations in this country and around the world operate. And the types of false flag terrorism events that have gone on in the past, as well as things like uh, uh, dark occult rituals and, uh, you know, hypnotic or like uh, mass mind control, uh, dark satanic rituals, things like that, that go on. And uh, without having any foreknowledge of anything like that or any of that being involved with any part of the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence apparatus or any of the Bush dynasty or anything like that, you you would not see that event in the same way as someone who did have that information, right? So similar, you know, how I'd, I'd make a claim and then it would take a long time to flesh out that claim, flesh out that argument and make sure that I can provide enough information that I felt like other people who had thoroughly gone through that could at least accept the fact that it's possible that this would be an intentional event when talking about, you know, COVID-19 or even going back to previous pandemics or the anthrax attacks or other biological weapons agents, events that have gone on that are more or less, you know, military operations, uh, military war games, they call them, or tests, you know, that go live, essentially go real world. And they're able to kind of, you know, manage the outcome of that event. It's the, you know, problem, reaction, solution, as David Icke would say, and not anything to do with Hegel and his philosophy, but dialectical mechanics, I suppose, and looking at, you know, making a situation occur so that you can then organize the outcome and control, you know, the resolution and move things forward in a direction that's more beneficial to, you know, your overall worldview and and plans and even evil plots or whatever. So someone like Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset or the London School of Economics getting in, on board or the Rothschilds, uh, uh, certain members of their family, a uh, Lynn Forrester to Rothschild and the Pope and uh, Prince Philip getting on board with uh, or Prince Charles getting on board with the inclusive capitalism thing. Basically, what's looking coming into view is like worldwide communism 2.0, like a neo-communist uh, plot. At the same time, you have sort of this uh, neo-Nazi scientific experiment aspect to everything with a real-world false flag, like a a bio aspect to this psychological warfare operation. So that's why we call it the bio psy War. And today, uh, let's see if I covered the talking points that I really wanted to discuss before we got into uh, the show exactly. We got quite a bit to go into today, so... Just like last week, I'll try to speed along. Um, <clears throat> I may not give as much commentary as I've done here in the intro throughout and just try to rather display the information, uh, put it down on the on the podcast so it's documented and building out the story. So again, if you're starting here in the War, there's nothing wrong with watching it live if that's uh, what you're doing, but also, you know, you'd want to also... Review the last four episodes as well as maybe getting ready for Human 2.0, where we go into DARPA and a lot of the technologies that they've been developing, let's say. And uh, also the total PSYOP awareness, where I st- essentially started the idea of the Bio Psy War series. And so having those in, in context with this episode would be helpful. And then we'll continue down this road for the time being. I wanted to also interview potentially coming up here soon, Adam Finnegan, who would probably be able to provide a lot uh, more detailed information in a more condensed manner on today's subject. So, you know, that may be happening soon. I think he's working on a book right now, Um, but we'll get into that. And let me uh, go ahead here and press this button. And you can see here just the TylerBlair.com website. Uh, go ahead and get your 19 skills, and uh, check out uh, the new One Great Work Network. And also head on over to GrandTheftWorld.com, which is another site that you could check out that I work on the back end and also help produce the po- main podcast that goes on there. Uh, but anyway, the what we're going to be getting into is a book that you saw on that. If you're watching or if you're listening to the audio of this, you heard uh, them talk about maybe Lab 257 and the plum island uh lab and the book there so that book here is a HarperCollins publisher version of it here i also have a copy here that we're going to go into that wikipedia says building 257 also known as lab 257 Let's see if i can give you a little zoom maybe move no nope, wrong button <laughs> all right Building 257, also known as Lab 257, was a United States biological warfare research laboratory located at Fort Terry on Plum Island, New York. Originally intended for munitions storage, the facility researched anti-animal biological agents beginning in 1952 under the United States Army. Biological warfare research continued in the building under the united states department of agriculture usda until the laboratory was complete so that's not meant to be like anything uh, totally revelatory just a little context on the general sort of encyclopedic uh input there on building 257 or lab 257 and the next thing that we're going to do is uh just give me a sec Sorry, just had to manage the children there. It came in. Uh is go into the actual book itself. So lab two fifty-seven, pick this up. Now let's just reposition this and go into this a little bit here. So again, to kinda of get an idea and a look and a feel, we'll go into the back cover here. And it says, if you've lost sleep after reading The Hot Zone, then, oops, let me get that in center, then Christopher Carroll's Lab 57* will keep you awake at night. It's one of the best pieces of investigative reporting you'll read this year. Lab 257 is a must-read reading for the post-9-11 world, says Nelson DeMille. So these are just reviews, but we'll read them anyway. Uh, the next one says, "If we're lucky, someone in the media will read this carefully, researched chilling expose of the potential catastrophe, and force the government and force the government to do something about it." So I guess maybe that's uh, you and I, <laughs> who are supposed to be those lucky. That, uh, if this person's lucky, then these people will make more people aware of this. So that's what we're, I guess, what we're doing here today. Um, it says if not, Mike Carroll's brilliant work will have been wasted, and we have, and we may be the victims once again of government inadvertence. And then finally, uh, that was from Mario M Cuomo, and from Lowell P. Wecker, Jr., former U.S. Senator, says Lab Lab 257 proves that scientific fact on Plum Island can indeed be stranger than science fiction. Mike Carroll has the uncanny ability to transport the reader inside the frightening world of Plum Island. All right. And so it says, The Disturbing Story of Government Secret Plum Island Germ Laboratory. And reading the... going to fix this a little bit. Reading the inside cover here, it says... Strictly off limits to the public, Plum Island is home to the original beaches, cliffs, forests, and ponds in the deadliest germs that have ever roamed the earth. Nestled near the Hamptons, Hamptons the fashionable summer playground of America's rich and famous, and the shadow of the New York City of New York City lies an impo- unimposing 840-acre island unidentified on most maps on the few on which it can be found plum island is marked red or yellow and sh- and stamped u.s government restricted or dangerous animal diseases though many people live the good life with the scant within a scant mile or two from its shores few know the name of this pork chop shaped island even fewer can say whether it is inhabited or why it doesn't exist on the map. That's all about to change. Lab 257, the disturbing story of the government's secret Plum Island germ laboratory blows the lid off the stunning true nature of the checkered history of Plum Island. It shows that the seemingly bucolic island on the edge of the latest, largest population center in the United States is a ticking biology time bomb that none of us can safely ignore <clears throat> based on the innumerable innumerable declassified government documents scores of in-depth interviews and access to Plum Island itself this is an eye-opening sp- suspenseful account of the federal government's germ laboratory gone terribly wrong For the first time, Lab 257 takes you deep inside the secret world of, and presents startling revelations including virus outbreaks, biological meltdowns, infected workers who were denied assistance in diagnosis by Plum Island Brass, the periodic flushing of contaminated raw sewage into the area waters, and the insidious connections between Plum Island Lyme disease and the deadly 1999 West Nile virus breakout. An exploration of the complex world of microbiology, viruses, and bacteria. Lab 257 also shows how the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which was ran by, sorry, let me start that over. I was making sure I was in screen there. Department uh, The Department of Agriculture, which ran Pum, Plum Island for the last half century, is far more than wholesome grade A eggs and the food pyramid. The book probes what's in store for Plum Island's new owner, the Department of Homeland Security, in this age of bioterrorism, and for those interested in questions of national security and safety... It is a call to action for those concerned with protecting present and future generations from preventable biological catastrophes. Lab 257 will change forever our current understanding of Plum Island, a place that is in the world the word sorry, a place that is in the words of one insider, a biological 3-mile island okay so christopher uh, michael christopher carroll spent seven years researching and writing lab 257 a native of long island and an avid outdoorsman carroll is now general counsel of new york-based finance company he lives on long island and in new york city all right so this book uh, again i think it's from 88 i want to say lab 257 an import of Harper Collins publisher the disturbing story again yeah 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 to my mother from michael for a quiet outing this is a uh, the intro actually you know i read that and it didn't really make sense unless you have a lot of context so we're just going to read just going to get out of the way to make a little bit more room on the screen. And again, we're reading from Lab 257 here from Michael Christopher Carroll. And I think it was a 1988 book. Didn't see the date there. Uh, I was just checking on that really quick uh, to see if I could find really quick when the published date was. I mean, it's been revised since then, and I could be way off. Maybe it's because there is mention of a lot of things going on with the Department of Homeland Security and things. So uh, we'll, we'll get back on that once we get back to the desk here. But for now, we'll just continue reading on. And a, a message to the reader in the beginning here. And it says, statements made during interviews and direct quotes from primary materials are contained In quotation marks and I altered some of them slightly for grammar. Fictitious names are used to to protect the identity of sources and they too are contained in quotes. Scenarios and dialogues I constructed are based upon recollection of multiple sources and primary and secondary research and as such are placed in italics. The title Lab 257 refers to one of the two laboratory buildings that exist on Plum Island The other being laboratory 101 based largely upon interviews official documents and detailed research this book is also the product of personal visits to plum island after the sixth of which i was abruptly denied further access by the u.s department of agriculture on the grounds of national security quote unquote furthermore further information for the reader can be found in the sources notes at the end of the book which i would also advise that you peruse here we can back out a little and just see this book uh here let's see if i can push that out a little you get this nice map of laboratory 101 on the island and laboratory 257 plum island this book has a lot of cool uh pictures and things like that in it as well
1: I'm still here. I was just again checking on something
2: Okay, so moving ahead uh we're not gonna go into a ton of this book today because I had a lot more that I wanted to go into as far as uh this the bulk of this episode and what we'll go into uh is not gonna be based on lab two fifty seven but I did want to go into a little bit of it just because they were mentioning it there, in the beginning. It actually looks like it was published in 2004, so I'm getting it probably confused. Oh yeah, with uh, Germ Wars, I believe is the book that was in '88 that I was getting confused with. This Book Lab t- 257, which is actually more recent from 2004. So apologize for that. Okay, so I'm glad I cleared that up before going further. Uh, here we're just going to read from this section, the Lime Connection. Okay, so, dear Anne, have you ever heard of Lyme disease? So this is like a, a letter sort of quote here in the beginning of the book. And it says, I am writing this letter because I know you can help thousands of people by warning them about this awful sickness. I have been battling it for 18 months. Frankly, I am not doing well. It would be imp- Possible for me to describe the emotional and physical pain that I have been through? I am forty-two year, a forty-two year old man, married nearly twenty years, and have a family. The days of slinging in a hundred-pound sack of birdseed over my shoulder and walking in the backyard are over. Today, I can even lift. I can't even lift a five-pound sack of flour. There was a time when I could play uh, nine musical instruments. I sang in the church choir. I ran in my own. Sm- I ran my own small business, and today I do none of the above. I am saving all the energy to fight Lyme disease. The treatment cost a staggering. Um, the treat. The treatment costs are staggering. An IV antibiotic therapy runs from about 150 to 475 dollars a treatment. We have already taken out a third mortgage on our home. Had been aware of. Um, Had I been aware of all the symptoms from the beginning, I would have had $15 worth of oral antibiotics, and that would have done the job. Thank you, and I'm allowing from Okay, so anyway, that was an opening letter, apparently, to someone about getting this biological weapons research out there. I'm just making an adjustment in the technical setup here to make it easier for me. And uh, that's really important about the antibiotics there and getting uh, Lyme, potentially having Lyme disease and potentially treating it with antibiotics. And we'll hear more about that later on in the episode. So keep that in mind. If you uh, ever are coming up against uh, Lyme disease or think that you might have it, it, it seems to be that antibiotics are highly effective. I'm not promoting the use of antibiotics uh, frivolously or something, I'm saying that, that that could be a potential lifesaver and save you a lifetime of pain, uh, as we'll know more here coming up. But we're just learning for now, so let's keep going. All right. So, protecting, reading from this uh, 1975, the Lime connection from Lab 257, protecting a nuclear power plant is no small task. When it opened in the 1980s, The Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant on Long Island's North Shore boasted a 175-man militia equipped with Uzi 9mm AR-15 rifles and a 12-gauge shotgun. This elite paramilitary unit patrolled the protected area, a dense forest hundreds of acres deep that buffered the controlled areas, a huge concrete dome sheltering the uranium nuclear reactor. Every eight hours a fresh detachment of fifty men, armed to the teeth and clad in steel-toed boots, tan pants and khaki shirts, marched in lockstep through the protected area along dirt paths and through the marshes. Their watchful eye and ears continually scanned for intruders. One shoreman security officer, a short, blonde-beard, barrel-chested man, remembered the scene during a 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift in October of 1987. His platoon had just moved out, marching into the field, where they had often spotted herds of 30 or 40 wild deer darting ahead of them into the wooded glen. He felt a brief pinch on his left ankle and thought it was a stiff new army boot, thought it was the stiff new army boots he was breaking in. Later that night, he went home and showered. Pulling his white tube socks, He no- t- pulling them off, he noticed a small red mark on his ankle. Those damn boots, he thought, and went to bed. When he awoke the next morning, the nagging blister had grown, so he grabbed tweezers from the bathroom vanity and poked on the area. Suddenly, something started to move. He then realized it wasn't a blister at all. It was a live bug. Panicked, he frantically dug in, dug into it. As he extracted the critter, it broke in two. Splitting the insides into microscopic hole, it punched into his body. 72 hours later, he thought he had the flu. Within a week, his joints began to ache. Most of the people don't know, don't think of a deer as swimmers, but they swim, they do. Indigenous to most of the United States and Canada, White tailed deer swim distances as long as four miles. Those natural predators, wolf, bear, mountain lions, and coyote, are long extinct from the northeast landscape, but one tiny foe remains. Poised atop a blade of grass, a deer tick waits patiently for anything warm blooded to brush by, feeding on deer as well as smaller creatures like birds and mice. The tick jumps abroad. Aboard and pierces its sharp mouth hooks into the skin of the unlikely host. Unlucky host, by the way, a tiny uh, glutton with his king-sized appetite. The tick sucks the blood of its hosts and feasts upon, uh, and feasts that can last up to two whole days. While it swells to a bubble over three times the original size, and at the same time, the little parasite deposits its own fluids in the host's fluids and sometimes proves that sometimes proves fatal the feeding habits of ticks and the swimming abilities of deer were little consequence to the old residents of Lyme of old Lyme Connecticut in July 1975 this quaint new england town is for the most part an upper crust community with tree-lined streets and fine uh, colonial and federal style homes As one of America's oldest towns funded by English Puritans, Old Lyme was enjoying its tricentennial as the nation prepared for a bicentennial, but strange set of occurrences uh, that year would forever change its reputation from a warm, charming enclave to a place of fear and despair. Old Lyme, nestled in the banks of Connecticut River, just as a shade north of Long Island's sound. Let me start that over again. Let me check the screen, make sure I'm on screen. Okay. Old Lyme, nestled on the banks of the Connecticut River, sits just a shade north of the Long Island Sound. The midsummer weather in 1975 was typical for the coastal Connecticut, hot, sticky, and humid. As, As little ones... Frolicked in the sun, ignoring the blistering heat, and grown-ups sought refuge on their porches by night, grateful for the uh, balmy summer breeze. Polly Murray and Judith Minch noticed something unusual about their children. Seemingly out of nowhere, they were showing signs and of strange physical and mental ailments. Alarmed, the two mothers quickly phoned their neighbors, who were observing strikingly similar conditions in their own children many of the kids in this neighborhood and some of the adults were suffering from the same skin rashes throbbing headaches and painful swollen joints okay so i'm still i'm just reminding i'm reading from page uh from the book lab 257 a book on plum island the disturbing story of government secret plum island germ laboratory a book published in 2004 uh, written by Michael C. Carroll, and uh, we're just reading sort of the introduction here, and uh, let me keep continue on on page uh, five together, Polly and Judith brought their concerns to the Connecticut Department of Health, which immediately appointed physicians from Yale University to investigate initially initially, the doctors misdiagnosed 39 children and 12 adults with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, a condition they named Lyme Arthritis, after the town where the strange outbreak occurred. Two years later, scientists linked Lyme Arthritis to the bite of a deer tick, and in 1981, Dr. Wally Bergdofer, a researcher at the National Institute of Health, discovered a thin spiral bacteria, in technical terms, a spirochete, immersed at the fluid of a, tick, a deer tick. He proved that the new spirochete was to blame, not for the Lyme arthritis, but entirely for an ailment, for an entirely new ailment, Lyme disease. So they they thought Lyme arthritis. And instead, he found these spirochetes uh, that are, are being called Lyme disease. And as we'll, as we'll further find out later on in this episode... And hopefully that's nice and clear for everyone. I'll just press that button. Uh, there's maybe not exactly one thing here in the, in the ticks that were making people sick. There could be a number of things. It could be a combination of things, uh, that are making people ill, uh, still to this day. And, uh, yeah, again, someone in the chat says truly a horror show disease. And yeah, I've not, uh, some This has been hard research to go through, and I'm not even scratching the surface of the stuff that goes on. And there's some uh, more heart-pulling things that we'll go into later this episode about uh, the people that are being affected. Okay, so Borrelia burgdorferi, B.D., named in honor of its discoverer, attacks humans in a number of ways, which is one reason why it remains difficult to diagnose. Characterized by symptoms such as facial paralysis and stiff swelling in the neck and joints. BB, yeah, BB also causes maladies like meningitis and encephalitis, both swelling of the brain and cardiac, cardiac, uh, sorry, cardiac problems including atro, uh, atroveniatricular block, uh, my, uh, cardiitis, and cardiomyalgia. Again, if I can't exactly pronounce the word, I'll just plow through it and not uh, continue to excuse myself in some of these larger medical terms where, you know, me, I'm just a lowly uh, researcher here who went to public school. So it's surprising that I can read these books at all. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. So that, uh, I think we can skip ahead a little bit. All right. So it talks about that. I'm going to try to remember to put my bookmarks back. Otherwise, what's the point having them? And we're just going to skip ahead a little bit here to the Project Paperclip Meets Plum Island on page 6 of Lab 257. And it says here, uh, there's a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it says, I do not believe that we should offer any guarantees to protect any of the hostility uh let me move my mic here let me start that over i do not believe that we should offer any guarantees to protection in the most hostilities period to germans among them may be some who should properly be tried for war crimes or at least arrested for active participation in nazi activities and that was franklin delano roosevelt in 1944 apparently Uh, We'd have to go look and see where that was quoted from. Uh, So, to the victim, victor belongs the spoils of the enemy. That's U.S. Senator William Marcy. And continuing on here from Project Paperclip meets Plum Island. On page six. I often think and almost tremble at what could have taken place had our teutonic enemies been more alive to this it is said that some of their scientists pointed out the advantages to be obtained from the artificial sowing of disease agents that attack domestic animals fortunately blunders existed in their teutonic camps as in our own consequently this means of attack was sorry starting over Consequently, this means of attack was looked upon as a scientific poppy dream. If as much time and money were invested in biological agent dispersion as in one bomber plane, the free world would have almost certainly gone down, gone to defeat. The audience murmured in acknowledgement, but one dedication day, VIP stirred uncomfortably. The dictator or sorry, the director of the new virus laboratory in the Tübingen, West Germany, personally invited by Plum Island director Maurice S. Doc shahan The mind of the brown-haired man with the scar above his face and upper lip held a dark secret. He sat there perspiring, staring at Dr. Mitchell through his gray-brown eyes, wondering how many people knew his past, for he... Dr. Eric Traub was the Teutonic enemy. Strangely enough, he had every right to be there. He was one of Plum Island's founding fathers. So that we're going to learn more about Eric Traub later on in this, uh, continuing on with the Project Paperclip meets Plum Island. And this will be something that will kind of leapfrog over uh, this Nazi connection into Plum Island and the bioweapons uh, research in, uh, in the United States and the United States military after World War II and the Project Paperclip bringing in the Nazis from Germany, uh, maybe some of them, you know, not-so-bad dudes, and then other of them, you know, ex- extremely horrific backgrounds and pasts and sort of passing by the Nuremberg trials, not being tried there and sort of giving a false uh, feeling in the American public that there was a well performed a trial and that we got the Nazi, uh, you know, evildoers uh, properly tried. So, nearing the end of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union raced to recruit German scientists for post-war purposes under the top secret program codenamed Project Paperclip. The U.S. military pursued Nazi scientific talent like Forbidden Fruit bringing them to America under employment contracts and offering them full U.S. citizenship. The recruits were supposed to be nominal participants in Nazi activities, but the zealous military recruited more than 2,000 scientists, many of whom had had dark Nazi party pasts. And that's a citation there that you could check. Uh, American scientists viewed these Germans as peers and quickly forgot that they were on opposite sides of a ghastly global war in which millions perished. Fearing brutal retaliation from the Soviets for the Nazis, uh, vicious treatment of them, some scientists cooperated with the Americans to earn amnesty. Others played the two nations off each other to get the best financial deal in exchange for their services. Dr. Eric Traub was the troubling on the uh, sorry was troubling on the soviet side of the iron curtain after the war and ordered to research germ warfare viruses for the russians he pulled off a daring escape with his family to west berlin in 1949 applying for project paperclip with his family to west berlin in 1949 um sorry i read that again apart applying for project paperclip employment traub affirmed he wanted to Quote, Do scientific work in the USA, become an American citizen, and be protected from Russian reprisals. Unquote. As lab chief of Incel Reims, a secret Nazi biological warfare laboratory on the crescent shaped island nestled in the Baltic Sea, Traub worked directly for Adolf Hitler's second in charge. SS Reichsherr Heinrich Himmler on the live germ warfare on germ trials. He packaged weaponized foot and mouth disease viruses and dispersed from Luftwaffe bomber into cattle and reindeer in occupied Russia. At Himmler's request, Traub personally journeyed to the Black Sea coast of Turkey. There, amid the lush Anatolian terrain, he searched for the leather strain, or the lethal strain of rindenpest virus, for use against the Allies. Earlier in the war, he had been a captain in the German army, working as an expert on infectious animal disease, particularly in horses. His veterinary corps led the germ warfare attacks on horses in the United States and Romania in World War I, with the bacterial. Uh, bacteria called glanders. He was also a member of the NSKK, the Nazi Motorist Corps, a powerful Nazi organization that ranked directly behind the SA, the Stormtroopers, <laughs> and the SS, elite corps. In fact, the NSKK's first member among the 1930s was Adolf Hitler himself. Traub also listed his 1930s membership in the America Ducher Walsenbund, a German-American quote, club, unquote, also known as Camp Siegfried, just thirty miles west of Plum Island, in Yen- Yapank, Long Island, Camp Siegfried was the national headquarters of American Nazi movement. Over forty thousand people through New York region arrived by trains, bus and bus and car to participate in the Nuremberg trial rally-like rallies. Each weekend they marched in lockstep divisions carrying swastika flags, burning Jewish... uh, Sorry, let me start that over again. Each weekend, they marched in lockstep division, carrying swastika flags, burning Jewish U.S. congressmen in effigy, and singing anti-Semitic songs. Above all, they solemnly pledged their allegiance to Hitler and the Third Reich. Ironically, Traub spent the pre-war period of his scientific career in a fellowship at the Rockefeller Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, preferring his skills in viruses and bacteria under the tutelage of American experts before returning to Nazi Germany on the eve of war. Despite Traub's troubling war record, the U.S. Navy recruited him for scientific design and stationed him in the Naval Medical Research Institute of Uh, Ballista, Maryland and uh, let's just read this next paragraph Uh, just months into the paperclip contract the germ warrior warriors of Fort Dietrich and uh, the army's biological warfare's headquarters in Fort in Frederick, Maryland and CIA operatives invited Traub in for a talk later reported in a declassified top secret summary Dr. Traub is a noted authority on viruses and diseases in Germany and Europe. This interrogation revealed much information of value to the animal disease program from a biological warfare warfare point of view. Dr. Traub discussed work done at a German animal uh, disease station during World War II and subsequent to the war when the station was under Russian control. So that is highly interesting, right? And there's more on Eric Traub uh, that we could go into here in this book and that we will uh, likely need to be covering in the future on the bio war. Uh, I'm going to skip way ahead in this book. And see, mainly I just wanted to peruse some of that with you to draw that connection to Lab 257 and... Uh, Operation Paperclip, Eric Traub, and uh, Nazi Scientific Biological Weapons Research. Uh, this is also this is a page, page from Eric Traub's Operation Paperclip Application. The Nazi germ warfare scientist was smuggled into the United States in 1949 and worked with the CIA, Army Navy, and USDA. He was a founding father of Plum Island and the National Archives uh, that's in the National Archives and Records Administration. And there's this, uh, the number of cases outbreak pattern you can see there and where the outbreak is centered around, um, being Plum Island and Connecticut there. Number of pictures in this book, again, an interesting one to go through. Now there's definitely plenty more to cover in that, but I think we're going to leave that there for now and move on today with the TikTok bio op and Let's see, what do we got next on the docket here? So, now, last week, we went into double-edged innovations. And the episode specifically that we did was called Double-Edged Developments. And in Double-Edged Developments, I ran short on time and went, began to go into this book, uh, this pamphlet or document, you could say, called The Double-Edged Innovations, Preventing the Misuse of Emerging Biological-Chemical Technologies um, by Jonathan B. Tucker um, from July of 2010. And this is from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Um, These agencies sort of pop up every now and then, and we could go more into the actual history of that. I'm just more pulling these open to put them in the show notes so you can read more about the Defense Threat Reduction agency if you're interested here. and it'll it'll come up more in the future as well. Uh, this particular entity. and uh, from what I recall, it's more of a neocon you know project for a new American century sort of uh, entity. Uh, but from that book, there's some interesting from that pamphlet or uh, essay or, you know, document, there's some interesting sections that we should go through and cover. And to do that, what I'm going to do on the screen here for those watching this and not listening is pull up uh Calibre and uh Calibre allows me to have the digital version of like a PDF like that. I could print out pages as well and have those pages on the document cam. I wanted to try this today, actually having this up on the screen like this, the book in digital form and using the highlights to read the sections that I wanted to read. And if it's not too bothersome, I might even try having the robot read uh, to it and we'll see how that goes. So I'm just gonna take a sip because partially uh, it's about getting this information documented, so me reading it is fine and it's it's good practice for me as well to read things live into the live stream and i enjoy reading in fact you know i I definitely want to go back and hit more that lab 257 book i haven't fully gone through it but i was able to go through enough of it that you could see it's highly interesting uh information being uncovered there but also i want to try you know a different method that may be a little bit uh tricky at first so just giving a forewarning fair warning up front that this uh, reading that I'm going to have a robot read <laughs> some of this book to us, not the whole thing, but a large portion of the uh, part on LSD that we'll learn about here in a sec. But let me go back here and read about chapter one, the introduction from that same book. So this, this is the same uh, document that I just had up here. It's just a, in a darker background and it's been made into an EPUB. With Calibre. So it says uh, several areas of, and I'm just going to press this several areas of rapid technology, technical innovation such as biotechnology, nanotechnology, and neuroscience offer great promise for human health and welfare, but could also be exploited for the development and production of biological or chemical weapons. Such technologies pose a, quote, dual use dilemma, unquote, because because it is difficult to prevent misuse without foregoing beneficial applications. So this is sort of the the whole thing I've been going into with this, is there's always this reason, this excuse uh, for doing the research anyways, even though it could potentially be more risky than what they're actually trying to prevent by doing the research, So continuing on, it says, indeed, in many cases, the technologies that can do the most good are also capable of the greatest harm. Since the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, several developments in the life sciences have raised the political salience salience and urgency of the dual use issue. One example is the synthesis from scratch of several pathogenic viruses, including the causative agents of polio, SARS, and the 1918 pandemic strain of influenza. In addition to exploring the characteristics of emerging dual-use technologies in the biological and chemical fields, this book has a practical purpose to help policymakers devise the most Uh, Sorry, starting again. In addition to exploring the characteristics of emerging dual-use technologies in the biological and chemical fields, this book has a practical purpose to help policymakers devise the most appropriate and effective governance strategies to minimize the risk of double-edged innovations while preserving their benefits. Definitional Issues The term dual use has multiple meanings in the context of defense procurement. It refers to technologies or items of equipment here. Let's see if that's a little bit better. Yeah, there we go Uh, items. It refers to technology or items of equipment that have both civilian and military applications. Policymakers often promote the transfer of civilian technologies to the defense sector in order to reduce the cost of conventional weapon systems. In a different context, however, dual use refers to materials, hardwares, and knowledge that have peaceful uses but can be exploited for the production of nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons. Certain dual use chemicals, for example, have legitimate industrial applications but are also precursors for chemical warfare agents. And then there's some citations and references there. I'm going to skip to my next highlight here in this book, uh, jumping down now and still in chapter one, history of dual-use technologies. Since 9-11 and the anthrax letter attacks, the potential misuse of emerging technologies for the development and production of biological and chemical weapons have become a major focus of government concern. The problem of dual-use technologies, however, has much a much longer history. In the 20th century the two world wars saw the intensive exploitation of chemistry and the physics of military purposes including the development of high explosive chemical weapons radar ballistic missiles and the atomic bomb although biology played a much smaller role in these conflicts it did not escape applications as an instrument of warfare during world war one German saboteurs drew the bacteriological discoveries of Louis Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, and Robert Koch to carry out covert operations in which they used anthrax and glanders bacteria to sicken allied horses which have then which were then essential for the military logistics before and during World War II. The United States and Soviet Union, Britain, France, Germany, Japan and other countries harnessed scientific advances in microbiology for the development of offensive biological warfare capabilities. Imperial Japan was the only country that actually used biological weapons during this period. Between 1932 and 1945, Japanese military scientists developed a variety of biological weapons agents, tested them on human prisoners, and employed them against 11 Chinese cities. <clears throat> the biotechnology revolution began in the early 1970s, two decades after James Watson and Francis Crick published their seminal 1953 paper describing the double helical structure of the DNA molecule and suggesting a mechanism for its replication. In 1973, Stanley Cohen of Stanford University and Herbert Boyer of the University of California at San Francisco invented the basic methodology for combining genes from different organisms known as recombinant for William H. McNeil, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of power technology, armed forces, and society. That's the source reference there. Um, Okay, I'm just going over some of the tech here really quick. This is a one-studio, one-man production, so uh, we utilize things like a Stream Deck and other tools to help keep things going smooth, and then I just monitor in my headphone, and if I don't hear myself talking at some point, then I'll know something has gone wrong. right so again right now what we're reading from is the double-edged innovations preventing misuse uh, for emerging biological chemical technologies and this was from the defense threat reduction agency advanced systems and concepts office uh, written in 2010 and we're just going through in the bio site war and trying to uh, and what what we've been doing in the bio sci war is drawing the connection between the U.S. military uh, project Paperclip, uh, the Nazi biological weapons research, and the Japanese biological weapons research information throughout World War One and Two, and tying those connections into all the way up up until we're looking at uh, SARS CoV two. And what these people were looking at in the early 2000s as far as uh, this being something easily replicatable in a lab something that a malicious actor could easily get a hold of and release and uh, in my theory being that this was then a controlled release uh, if you look at things like event 201 if you look at the clade x if you look at uh, bill and melinda gates uh, investments into moderna and darpa's uh, research that they've been doing along with Moderna and the mRNA vaccines, it seems much more likely that that was a uh, released biological agent by not saying necessarily like the U.S. government or the U.S. military, but factions, black factions of intelligence agencies that are now completely mingled in in this corporate fascist, uh, you know, worldwide global reset thing that's, that's unfolding here Uh, nightmare, you could call a chimeric nightmare, you could say, here, now still reaching into 2021, where people would say, well, you know, someday things are going back to normal. And my perspective is that it's far from that. And things are only going to get more, uh, unsane, more completely out of control, as far as from the perspective of human safety, human freedom. And, uh, Moving forward, maybe some of the information we're covering here today could help people see a wider perspective on who we should be worried about or what sort of people or what sort of questions we should be asking of those people uh, as we kind of unfold the bio So, potentials for misuse, jumping down into chapter 11, I believe I'm on at this point, uh, a section here called Potential for Misuse. The ability to understand, modify, and ultimately create new life forms represents a scientific paradigm shift with a substantial potential for misuse. Once the standardization of genetic parts and modules has progressed to the point that they function reliably and can be inserted into a simplified bacterial genome for application, the technology will cross a threshold of dual-use potential. Predicting when this threshold will occur depends on the speed at which the field progresses. In principle, malicious actors could exploit synthetic biology to increase the efficiency, stability, or usability of standard biological warfare agents or to create new ones. To date, however, the primary concern with synthetic biology has been the synth- synthesis of known pathologic, known Pathogenic viruses rather than the use of standardized parts to create entirely novel pathogens Since parts-based synthetic biology is still a cutting-edge Technology bioterrorists would have to overcome formidably technical challenges to exploit it for a harmful
4: Nevertheless The increasing speed, accuracy, and accessibility
2: of gene synthesis technology and its explicit de-skilling agenda are likely to lower these barriers over time. And then it's another section here called ease of misuse, explicit and tacit knowledge from the... uh, double-edged innovations preventing the misuse of emerging biological chemical technologies, sort of tying a knot on the end of the last episode from the bio war, uh, the double-edged developments. Because synthetic biology currently requires considerable explicit and tacit knowledge, the greatest risk of misuse probably resides in state-level offensive biological warfare programs. As hands-on experience with synthetic biology continues to spread internationally, however, the nature of the risk will change in addition to the annual I-G-E-M competition, which has helped to popularize synthetic biology, de-skilling efforts by leading synthetic biologists including dissemination of do-it-yourselfer than synthetic biology kits and, quote, how-to, unquote, protocols. As a result of these efforts, the field of synthetic biology will gradually become accessible to a growing number of people, potentially enabling non-state actors to employ genetic parts and modules for nefarious purposes. This was back in 2010, recall, that I'm reading a document that is now uh, 11 years old, and these threats that were present back then uh for non-state actors and state actors are definitely more accessible now i would say so reading on access to the registry of standard biological parts is currently limited to uh, uh, limited to recognized research laboratories regardless of geographical location although this rule may change in the future the registry of the registry is quote open source Unquote, and no efforts have been made to date to patent the genetic components or to restrict access to the basis of nationality or other criteria. Some laboratory supply companies have also begun to sell synthetic biology regent kits and, quote, how to, unquote, manuals to interested biologists, both professional and amateur. Examples include the, quote, Biobrick assembly c- kit unquote, "and the quote, "Biobrick assembly manual" unquote, distributed jointly by Ginkgo Bioworks and New England Biolabs given the early stage of development of the parts based synthetic biology the risks that the terrorists or criminal groups could order standard bio- biological parts and construct an artificial pathogen for harmful purposes must be assessed as extremely long-term should the technology proliferate widely, however, the potential consequences of deliberate misuse could be considerable. And now another section awareness of dual use potential. In two thousand six, the National Research Council of Policy Analysis Unit of the US National Academics tasked an expert committee chaired by microbiologist Stanley Limon and David. Relman to analyze the security implications of the revolution in the life sciences the lemon relman committee in- concluded that the de novo synthesis of existing pathogens posed a greater near-term threat than that than the creation of artificial organisms through the parts-based approach similarly the National Science Advisory Board on Biosecurity, the NSABB, and its s- synthetic biology working groups have focused primarily on the use of DNA synthesis technology to recreate the quote select agents, unquote, defined as biological agents and toxins that can pose a 24 that compose a C. Arrow Row quote cloning kits more fun than chemistry set, unquote, Wired Magazine 2008. Uh, I clicked that and that page is missing. Not surprising. So you probably have to go to archive to get that. Um, all right. So again, we probably need to skip ahead a little bit here. I think I'm on this section now. So if we go here, awareness of dual use potential. Okay. Now we're making, we're making progress here. So let's just skip to basically, you know, what we're getting at here is like, not, it's not just me saying that, like, oh, you know, terrorists could just create bio. Like, this is the government basically saying that there's this known problem that terrorists or any other actor at some point in the near future are going to be able to just basically order biology parts off the internet or biological components and string together uh sequences to be able to create pathogen pathogenic viruses and airborne viruses and things and like it's almost like i was saying like the ghost gunner like 3d printing your own gun at home but in this case you can 3d print your own like anthrax <laughs> at home and it's not nothing nothing to laugh about but something that again is not just like my T- tyler's coming up with this crazy and wild story about how you know, the government could, uh, could potentially be working on these. Well, they're, they're not only working on it and manufacturing these things and then uh, having this information be available for other people to come by and pick up. They're also quite aware of the same exact issue that I'm, I'm describing. So I'm, you know, making the connection here that it's not crazy and far out that I would be saying the things that I'm saying, which is again, why we're sort of being long-winded, why we're doing a weekly series on this why I've decided to break down this information in this kind of sequential format. Um, There's probably people out there that are better researched than me that might be able to execute this better. Um, Point me to their research. I'm happy to assimilate that research and help promote their research, as we'll do today with uh, Chris Newby, as we did with the Lab 257 book, as I've done in the show notes with Dave Emery and his work, as we are with uh, The Grand Theft World and promoting Grand Theft World's work, and Whitney Webb and The Last American Vagabond. I am not claiming to have the foreknowledge and forefront most innovative uh, information on all this stuff and that I've got the big picture and that everyone should listen to me. I'm attempting to join in on the choir of people that should be screaming from the rooftops at how we need to be more vigilant about this type of stuff that I'm talking about, about the uh, uh, powers that we allow to be had uh, by the government who know that they're creating these chimera viruses, know the risk that they're taking and happily move forward while being all wrapped up in the vaccine uh, side of things as well. And being able to profit off of those things on the other side. And it's just, it, it makes me sick that people will just blindly believe uh, the mainstream narratives of what are, what are being told to them where the mainstream media has giant Pharmaceutical interest behind it and have no interest in telling you the absolute truth or the scientific truth about things to be able to use and apply science. That's not what it is. It's propaganda meant to make you react in a certain way and to control your mind. That's what the mainstream media is. It's not anything to do with, um, again, trying to pur- pur- purvey the truth of a, a certain thing or a certain matter out there to people. Uh, that is not at all what goes on in the media. I'm just uh, taking care of the phone here. Okay, so let's uh, point you and reference you to that document in the show notes so that I don't go too long-winded here and bore everybody to death. Uh, But no, there is this aerosolized thing that we need to touch on before I let the robot read us the last uh, bit of this. There's there's a constant interest in making something that's not aerosolized, aerosolized. And you're going to see this theme throughout the biopsy war. We've already seen quite a bit of it. And there's more research that I'm going to go through in the future, especially having to do with, you know, what people would call like weather modification and things like that. Spraying basically spraying, or, you know, you could say like deploying things into the air so that, you know, the environment itself becomes, uh, a vaccine, the environment itself becomes a software that might change something inside of you, cadmium, which could make someone extremely ill in a very short amount of time and possibly even have symptoms that are related to something like what is displayed as COVID-19. But we see here with Chapter 17, Aerosol Vaccines, a section by Raymond A. Ziliskitz and Hussein Alaramarni. Studies in animal and humans have shown that the delivery of vaccine in the form of an aerosol, an airborne suspension of fine particles, can be more effective than administering it orally or by injection over the past decade. One human aerosol vaccine for intranasal delivery can be has been developed to the marketing stage, and a few others are in advanced clinical trials. Aerosol vaccines for deep lung delivery have also been developed and shown to provide effective protection against various infectious diseases, but they have not been approved and marketed for human use. The delivery of an aerosol vaccine requires an aerosol generator, which employs a pressurized air or gas to break up the, the preparation into a suspension of airborne particles small enough to enter the respiratory tract. Although aerosol generators are known to be suitable for the delivery of biological warfare agents, this chapter addresses the broader topic of aerosol vaccine technology, including the development of a vaccine formulation that is medically uh, um, efficacious when administered in aerosol form. The chapter assesses the potential for misuse of this technology and concludes with some options of governance. So they go through and talk about, you know, aerosolizing a vaccine and how to do that and the potential misuse problem of it and the way to govern around that, right? So that's that's highly interesting. In 2010, they're talking about this potential problem and also benefit of being able to vaccinate people by using aerosolized uh spraying into the sky basically now going down and skipping way down here we're going to go into the appendix the misuse and misuse of lsd in this document if you're just joining or you joined late while i'm rambling and going on and on in this it's what we're reading right now is the double edged innovations preventions preventing the misuse of emerging biological and chemical technologies this was uh, the Defense Threat Reduction agency. And keep in mind as you're listening to this uh, next part, the theory that I'm floating here or the sort of premise of all this for me is that you know they're, they're sort of speaking out of one side of the mouth here and like speaking something else out of the other side of the mouth. You know th- this is to be read with a grain of salt. A lot of the time when they're talking about the benefits of these aerosolized vaccines, you know, imagine the potential, Uh, you said a a Yosef Mengele or imagine that someone like uh, you know that uh, bioweapons research um, gentleman that was being spoken about who was imported uh, over through Project Paperclip and uh, over into Plum Island and uh, Eric uh, Traub imagine what they may do in a 20 19 2020 technological environment with some of the uh, technology that's available now imagine what someone like that might do with that sort of uh, technology and research available to, to them so again, I'm just going to pull this title up on the screen. And really the only purpose of going through this next section is just to give more evidence, more context that when people say, well, they wouldn't do that, they they would never do that. You know, what you're saying sounds like a conspiracy theory. It sounds like something, you know, that, that you just made up there, Tyler. Um, that's the whole idea, you know, going through this. It, was sort of sparked by conversations that I'd had with people like that, trying to explain, you know, my thoughts on the whole uh, pandemic plague COVID-19 thing and really not being anywhere near the same page (laughs) as far as like how we're looking at it, how we're approaching it, what we're going to do in the future to react to it. And then like, as much as like, you know, giving our trust again to the media and the vaccine manufacturers, as far as just jumping right in and, you know, Give me, go ahead and just give me the job right away. I'm, you know, all on board for it and not having any of this other information that keep in mind, people like Fauci are well aware, way more aware than I am or uh, anything that we've covered here about all this, uh, Gain of function research and the different uh, types of things that they were creating and researching in the labs and the potential for those things to get out. How much of that has been mentioned to you at all when it comes to the mainstream narrative on where this originated from? We just keep hearing about this one vector. There's this, you know, bat uh, animal virus, and it definitely not that this whole thing doesn't have to do with animals or bats. Because that, that's part sort of the psyop is to be like, well, if it's not bats, then it's just made in the lab. Well, they could be making bat, uh, pangolin, you know, bird viruses and mixing them together, you know. So these chimeras that they're creating and their intention to not only test them on a wide scale, but then have scenarios played out where you can have a whole system set up to benefit from that that whole pandemic scenario. There's a lot of money to be made in a pandemic in a disaster. Um, So what we're going to do now is go into that reading. I was talking about uh, to give my voice a little break. We'll get some more information from that document, the double-edged innovations and um, come back after we've read heard a little bit about this appendix B in the book, the use and misuse of LSD by the U S army and the CIA. Let's try this out. Do it live.
4: Particular tech, Appendix B, the use and misuse of LSD. By the US Army and the CIA. Mark Wheelis. Introduction. The use of chemicals to modify brain function is an ancient practice. For millennia, humans have employed alcohol, marijuana, coca leaf, psychedelic fungi, and other plant extracts for ritual, therapeutic, and recreational purposes. There have also been sporadic reports of the use of psychoactive drugs for hostile ends, such as chemical warfare, CW, and covert operations. A wide variety of drugs have been examined for their potential to incapacitate enemy soldiers, enhance the capabilities of friendly troops, assist in interrogation, and induce psychosis in enemy leaders. Chemicals studied for these purposes have been drawn largely from recreational or ritual drugs, as well as known categories of pharmaceuticals, the two categories overlap. This historical case study examines the efforts by the U.S. Army and the Central Intelligence Agency during the 1950s to develop lysergic acid diethylamide as an incapacitating chemical weapon, an interrogation aid, and a mind control agent. 1. The Army and the CIA were attracted to LSD because of its extraordinary potency, dramatic disturbance of cognitive function, and low lethality, which gave the drug potential as a military incapacitant and as an agent for covered intelligence use. Although the mechanism of action of LSD was unknown when the programs took place, such understanding was not required for its empirical use. The Army's attempt to develop LSD into a battlefield weapon did not involve scientific innovation but simply extended traditional CW technology to a new agent. The effort failed for the same reasons that have prevented many other chemicals from becoming effective weapons. Namely, the instability of the drug when dispersed as an aerosol and the difficulty and high cost of its synthesis. Similarly, the CIA's efforts to develop LSD as a mind control agent, an interrogation aid, and a weapon to induce psychosis in enemy leaders were simply an extension of previous development efforts with other psychoactive chemicals such as mescaline, tetrahydrocannabinol. One Adrian Mayer, Greek fire, poison arrows, and scorpion bombs, biological and chemical warfare in the ancient world, New York, overlook Duckworth. 2003, 318, THC, scopolamine, and barbiturates. LSD was usually administered by adding it to a drink offered to an unwitting subject, an extremely low-tech delivery method. The CIA development program failed because the drug did not produce desirable effects in a reproducible manner, and because of belated concerns about the legality of the program. Although U.S. experimentation with LSD as an agent for hostile purposes ended in the 1960s, military and intelligence agencies around the world continue to be interested in the development of other drugs for riot control, counterterrorism, interrogation, and troop enhancement. The potential use of such chemicals raises serious ethical and legal issues about manipulating the mental function of individuals without their informed consent. Broader themes addressed in this case study include the interpretation of misuse, the importance of oversight the role of individuals, normative dynamics, and human rights issues. Background on LSD LSD disrupts the perceptual and cognitive systems in the brain, leading to powerful visions and hallucinations. These effects are sometimes experienced as profoundly meaningful, creating a sense of cosmic unity. Alternatively, the hallucinations induced by LSD can be terrifying, particularly if the subject is unaware of having been drugged. It is now understood that LSD is structurally similar to the neurotransmitter serotonin and mimics its excitatory action on a set of receptor sites in the cerebral cortex called 5-HT2A receptors. LSD is therefore termed a serotonin receptor agonist. A serotonin antagonist is a drug that blocks rather than stimulates the receptor. Because other 5-HT2A agonists do not all produce hallucinations, it is clear that some aspects of the mechanism of action of LSD are not fully understood. Recent research has begun to identify the specific cortical pathways that are responsible for the drug's hallucinogenic effects. 2. LSD was first synthesized in 1934 by Albert Hoffman, a chemist at the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz, who was investigating derivatives of compounds isolated from ergot, a fungus that grows on rye and related plants, as possible drugs. Because lysergic acid is present in significant amounts in ergot infected grains, Hoffman extracted it and systematically 2 J. Gonzalez Miso ETAL. Hallucinogens recruit specific cortical 5 HT2A receptor mediated signaling pathways to affect behavior, Neuron, Volume 53, 2007, pages 439 452. 319. Synthesized derivatives of the molecule, including LSD. Several years later, in 1943, Hoffman was renewing work with some of these derivatives when he suddenly felt dizzy and intoxicated in a way he had never experienced before. He left work early, bicycled home, and lay down. Several hours of vivid hallucinations followed before he gradually returned to normal. Hoffman suspected that he had accidentally absorbed one of the experimental compounds he was handling. To determine if that was the case, he deliberately ingested a tiny amount of LSD 250 micrograms a dose so small that no other drug known at that time would have had a noticeable effect. His plan was to gradually take more of the drug throughout the day until he reached a dose at which the first symptoms appeared. In fact, he had already ingested taken an amount that was several times the at 50, effective dose 50, or quantity that causes a specified effect in 50 percent of the people taking it. Thus, Albert Hoffman experienced the first deliberately induced acid trip. 3. LSD remained a curiosity until the early 1950s, when the psychiatric community became interested in it as a psychotomimetic agent a drug that mimicked mental illness, especially schizophrenia. The hope was that LSD intoxication and schizophrenia shared a common biochemical basis and that the drug would provide a reversible clinical model for the study and eventual cure of schizophrenia. It was also believed that LSD would provide effective therapies for a number of mental illnesses by disrupting entrenched patterns of thought. Numerous studies of the drug were carried out in academic laboratories, psychiatric hospitals, and prisons, mostly with financial support from the army and the CIA that was funneled through front organizations to conceal the source. These studies continued through the 1960s, but it gradually became clear that LSD intoxication was not a valid model of schizophrenia and provided no clinical benefit for any mental illness studied. In recent years, however, there has been a resurgence of interest in LSD for treating mental illnesses involving serotonin pathways, and it is possible that legitimate clinical uses may yet be discovered. 4. 3. John Marks, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, The CIA and Mind Control, New York, W. W. Norton, 1991, pages 3-4. to four. 4. D. E. Nichols, Hallucinogens, Pharmacology and Therapeutics, Volume 101. 2004, pages 131 to 181, John Tierney. Hallucinogens have doctors tuning in again, New York Times, April 11, 2010, PA1, 320. The Army LSD program. In May 1955, the US Army officially launched Project M1605, which sought to develop a psychochemical agent as a military weapon. The requirements were for a chemical that was as potent as sarin nerve agent produced effects in less than an hour, was stable in storage, and was capable of dissemination from aircraft under all weather conditions. An absence of long-term effects was considered useful but not essential. About 45 compounds including mescaline, LSD, THC and related compounds were tested in animals. In 1956, the Army approved testing by the Chemical Corps of Psychochemicals in human subjects. Over the next two decades until 1975, More than 250 different chemical compounds were tested in over 2,000 experiments involving some 6,700 soldier volunteers and 1,000 civilians, mostly prisoner volunteers. In addition, the experimenters regularly subjected themselves to the agents they were testing. Most of the tests were conducted at Edgewood Arsenal, the Chemical Corps' Research and Development Facility near Aberdeen, Maryland, on Chesapeake Bay. This facility was already involved in human experimentation because the Chemical Corps had long conducted tests of low doses of CW agents, such as mustard gas and nerve agents, on human volunteers. 5. LSD was one of the most promising candidates for a new incapacitating weapon. Human testing showed it to be highly potent and demonstrated its ability to disorganize small military units performing routine tasks. By 1958, The Army was sufficiently enthusiastic about the potential of psychochemical agents that it mounted a major public relations campaign, including testimony to Congress to solicit additional funding. The campaign included a movie showing a cat on LSD cringing in terror before a mouse. In fact, however, the Army researchers encountered problems when trying to move LSD out of the laboratory and onto the battlefield. The compound was unstable in sunlight, limiting the ability to disseminate it as an aerosol cloud the standard delivery method for military chemical weapons. LSD was also a highly complex molecule that was costly to produce. Initially the drug was prepared by chemically modifying lysergic acid extracted from ergot and was available only in small quantities from Sandoz. Even after Eli Lilly achieved the complete chemical synthesis of LSD in 1953, the multi-ton quantities needed for a chemical weapon stockpile would have been prohibitively expensive to produce. 5. Martin Fermansky and Malcolm Dando mid-spectrum incapacitant programs, in Mark Wheelis, Lejos Rasa, and Malcolm Dando, EDS, Deadly Cultures, Biological Weapons since 1945, Cambridge, MA, Harvard University Press, 2006, pages 236 to 251. 321. For these reasons the Army's interest in LSD waned, and the research effort ended in the early 1960s instead. The Chemical Corps turned its attention to another hallucinogenic agent called quinoclidinyl benzylate, BZ, a plant glycolate related to atropine and scopolamine. BZ was eventually weaponized and stockpiled, although it was never used on the battlefield or even deployed to forward bases. 6. Despite the setback, the Army continued a research program to investigate the utility of LSD as an aid to interrogation, similar to what the CIA was doing but on a much smaller scale. As part of this program, 95 volunteers were dosed with LSD and subjected to mock interrogations. This effort was followed in 1961-62 by two programs, codenamed Third. Chance and Derby Hat, which involved the administration of LSD during interrogations in Europe and the Far East. The Army interrogation programs, which ended in 1963, involved many of the same legal and ethical issues as the CIA program and are not discussed further in this case study. 7. The CIA's LSD program. The U.S. Office of Strategic Services, OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, tested several drugs as aids to interrogation during World War II A Truth Drug Committee studied mescaline, scopolamine, and barbiturates before turning to marijuana in 1943 Human testing was done on employees of the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb program, presumably because it was subject to intense secrecy. When the subjects were given cigarettes injected with an extract of marijuana, The results were encouraging, they became talkative and freely disclosed information. The OSS then tested the technique on an unwitting subject, a gangster who was cooperating with the U.S. government to recruit mafia support for the Allied forces preparing to invade Sicily. Again, this experiment was considered a success because the subject volunteered sensitive details about the mob's involvement in the drug trade. Additional trials on suspected communist sympathizers were also considered successful. Ultimately, however, the OSS concluded that the 6 seven U.S. Senate, final report of the select committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities, hereafter the Church Committee Report, Washington, D.C., U.S. Government Printing Office, 1976, p.p. 392, 412, 322. Drug treatment only worked on people who were predisposed to talk and not on resistant subjects. 8. After the creation of the CIA in 1947, there was a renewed interest in enhanced interrogation techniques and the use of drugs to destroy a subject's will or to induce amnesia. These interests were inspired in part by two incidents that occurred in Hungary in 1949: the show trial of Cardinal Jozsef Mindszenty, who acted drugged and confessed to absurd charges, and the arrest later that year of Robert Vogler, an executive with the International Telephone and Telegraph Company, who was charged with spying and given unknown drugs during his interrogation and trial. Although Vogler was convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison, he was released and repatriated after 17 months. Shortly after the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, captured U.S. Air Force pilots began confessing to fictitious activities, such as waging biological warfare. These events convinced the CIA that the Soviet Union and its allies had developed techniques for mind control and that the United States had to catch up both to understand the interrogation methods being used against U.S. soldiers and spies and to employ them against the communist enemy. 9. In response to these concerns, the CIA approved in April 1950 a program codenamed Bluebird, directed by Morse Allen, a polygraph expert from the agency's Office of Security. The purpose of Bluebird was to explore various methods of enhanced interrogation, including drugs, electroconvulsive shock treatment, lobotomy, and hypnotism. The drug component of Bluebird involved giving subjects a mixture of sedatives, the barbiturates ametol, secanol, or pentothol, and stimulants, amphetamines, caffeine, atropine, or scopolamine, together with hypnosis and occasionally marijuana, and subjecting them to a polygraph. In July 1950, a CIA team went to Japan for a few months to test these techniques on suspected communist agents and North Korean prisoners of war. Although the results of these studies are unknown, they were apparently not encouraging because the search for new drugs continued. In August 1951, Bluebird was renamed Artichoke for security reasons. Beginning in 1952, the CIA sent teams of interrogators to several countries, including Germany, France, Japan, and Korea, where they set up safe houses to conduct their activities. At least one safe eight marks, search, pages six to nine. Nine 9. H.P. Alborelli, Jr., A Terrible Mistake. The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, Walterville, Oregon, Trine Day, 2009, pages 187-206. 323. House was established in Washington, D.C. for several years, the Artichoke teams used the new techniques to interrogate known or suspected double agents and defectors. The results were inconsistent, sometimes the interrogations produced useful information but often the results were disappointing. Furthermore, there was growing concern about releasing subjects who had been interrogated with Artichoke methods, for fear that they would talk about their experiences. This concern led to studies of chemical or physical ways to induce amnesia, which ultimately failed. Artichoke also investigated whether drugs, hypnosis, or other techniques could enable the CIA to control a subject's mind and force him to carry out a command, such as to assassinate a specified target. This effort appears to have been unsuccessful although some have claimed that the CIA had limited success in controlling the minds of a small number of subjects who had pre-existing mental conditions such as multiple personality disorder. 10. Given this background and the prior use of LSD as a model for schizophrenia, it is not surprising that CIA officials leapt at the drug when they became aware of it in the early 1950s. Much of the voluminous experimental work on LSD under Project Artichoke was supported by the CIA but performed in universities, prisons, and mental hospitals. To conceal the source of the funds, the money was channeled through front companies or other government agencies. In some cases, the investigators failed to obtain informed consent and administered LSD to unwitting people, such as adult or pediatric mental patients, but they usually informed the subjects in general terms about the nature of the experiments. Even so, many ethically marginal experiments took place. 11. The CIA wanted to administer LSD to unwitting, mentally healthy, resistant individuals, which meant that informing subjects that they were participating in a drug trial would limit the value of the information being gathered. Because the experiments that the CIA wished to conduct were clearly illegal and unethical, they could not be performed by outside agencies. In 1953, CIA scientists began a series of projects, including one codenamed Gultra, in which they gave LSD to unwitting subjects. Twelve Gultra had two sister projects. Mnemi was a ten marks, Search he's pages MK 24 Ultra. to 29, 31 to 47.
2: When the robot says MKUltra, he's saying MKUltra, just to help clarify that.
4: Alberelli, Terrible Mistake, pages 207 to 250. Colin A. Ross, The CIA Doctors, Human Rights Violations by American Psychiatrists, Richardson, Texas, Manitou Communications, 2006. 11 marks search. Pages 63-73, Ross, CIA Doctors, Pages 81-83. 12. The MK prefix denotes projects run by the CIA's Technical Services Staff, a unit within the Clandestine Directorate of Operations that was also responsible for developing new weapons, disguises, and false papers. 324. Joint program with the U.S. Army Chemical Corps' S. Special Operations Division, (SOD) at Fort Detrick, Maryland to develop delivery devices and tactics for the covert use of chemical and biological products, including LSD. In addition, Delta was a project to use Ghoultra products in field trials overseas, taking over from artichoke. All three projects were run by Sidney Gottlieb, a Ph.D. chemist who headed the chemical division of the CIA's technical services staff. In April 1953, Director of Central Intelligence Alan Dulles approved Gultra and Richard Helms, the head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, assigned the project an initial budget of $300,000 due to its sensitivity, Mgultra was exempted from the usual internal financial controls and requirements for written contracts. The initial project team consisted of six technical services staff professionals. At first, the subjects were CIA agents who knew that they might be dosed with LSD at any time, but did not know when yet even these experiments did not necessarily provide useful information about the response of completely unwitting subjects 13. beginning in may 1953
2: mkool Tra- all right now i know that that was just getting good and i know that that may be new to some people out there um and i would suggest that you know i don't know about reading that whole document double-edged innovations but uh maybe dave mcgowan's book stranger things um, or um, some other research that i could follow up on perhaps later down the road from the bio sci war um, but the main point of tying that part of it in and going into all the lsd research is to show again that the army and the military and the cia are conti- continuously testing these biological weapon potentials and things like that, and uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland, and, and uh, Alan Dulles, and the CIA are all involved, and the Operation Paperclip would have fed MKUltra with a lot of uh, different uh, scientists on that research, and I was gonna do a quick search in here just to see. Did they mention Paperclip? Probably not, huh? Not in this document. <laughs> Let's try one more time. Paper is the word. Paper. Paper. Clip. No. So yeah, not surprising that in this document they don't. They mentioned some of the things. Like some of the things they were mentioning there were pretty interesting, right? Where they're like the CIA uses front companies to fund certain operations and so does the army so basically like they're they're still doing that now like that wasn't a thing that they did just back then and now they don't do those things anymore right um now that's still pretty much how you know the black the black uh, operations black budgets go that they are able to fund things like that one would wonder you know, where does the money come from, from those fronts? And a lot of the time, maybe it's borrowed from the government itself. When it says things like the Alan Dulles, the CIA director, approved it. Well, what does that mean necessarily, that he's uh, approving the funding and all that? So anyway, we're going to have to jump ahead a little bit here. So I'm going to start to speed this up and go into the next topics for today, which is Lyme disease. Lyme disease, also known as Lyme borreliosis, borelo- <laughs> is an infectious disease caused by bacteria in a a borrelia type the most common sign of infection is an expanding area of redness known as arrhythmia margins that's begins at the site of the tick bite they're like these uh, circles around it i guess anyway so you can you're a big boy big girl uh big person you can go out and read about lyme disease on infogalactic yourself in the show notes Another character that's going to come up here soon is going to be Willy berg Daufer, um born in 1925, died in 2014, <laughs> was an American scientist, interesting, the same year that, that uh, Lab 257 came out, right? Born in Basel, Switzerland, an, or an American scientist and educated in Basel, Switzerland, considered an international leader in the medical et- entomology, he discovered the bacterial pathogens that causes Lyme disease, a spirochete named... Boreala Bergdofer in his honor. And he actually, in the book, uh, that Bitten, that we're going to go into here in a bit, that I have here on the desk, we're going to go into um, that he actually thought it was a Swiss agent, uh, is what he called it, that was causing Lyme disease and not uh, necessarily the uh, spirochetes. Um, But it could be the spirochetes or a number of things. And we're going to go into Bitten here in a little bit if we get the time to do so. So that's why I'm kind of speeding up. Let me just close some of these out behind me. Uh, Chris Newby is the author of that book you just saw. And you can find her website here in the show notes. She's got the documents. She's got all the documents for the book uh, written here. So they're all based, her research is all based on these government documents. This is all like declassified things or different things that she put together uh, that are readily available and not uh, declassified. A lot of the things that we don't know that probably are like way more uh, interesting and probably like more damning uh, are things not declassified, things we don't know about. Um, but again, on Chris Newby's site, she has these different documents that she used to help source the book and compiled right there on the site, which I found pretty cool. Thank you for doing that. And uh, HarperCollins Publishers uh, has a section on her as well that you can read about. Chris Newby is an award-winning science science writer at Stanford University and the senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary Under Our Skin. We'll watch a little bit of that later, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was a 2010 Oscar semi-finalist. Previously, Newby was a technology writer for Apple and other Silicon Valley companies. She lives in Palo Alto. Okay. Uh, more on, on Chris Newby can be read at other uh, places as well. I'm just showing you like who we're kind of going into. And real quick, I just want to read a couple articles from The Guardian. Uh, the U.S. military agency invests $100 million in genetic in extinction technologies, this is three years old, technology could be used to wipe out malaria-carrying mosquitoes or other pests, but UN experts say fears over possible military uses and unintended consequences strengthen cases for a ban. The US military agency is investing $100 million in genetic extinction technologies that could wipe out malaria mosquitoes, invasive rodents, or other species. Emails released from under Freedom of Information rules show the documents suggest that the U.S. Secret Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, had become the world's largest funder of gene, quote, gene drive, unquote, research, and will raise tensions ahead of UN expert committee meetings in Montreal beginning Tuesday. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity, CBD, is debating whether to impose a moratorium on the gene research next year, and several southern countries fear the possible military application. UN diplomats confirmed that the new emails released would worsen the, quote, bad name, unquote, of gene drives in some circles. Quote, many countries will have concerns when the technology comes from DARPA, the U.S. military science agency, unquote, one said. The use of genetic extinction technologies in bioweapons is the stuff of nightmares, but known research is focused entirely on pest control and eradication. See, it's always this dual reason, right? The double-edged innovation. The double-edged dilemma is that it could be used for other purposes. Cutting-edge, going back to the article, cutting-edge gene editing tools such as CRISPR-Cas9 work by using a synthetic ribonucleic acid RNA to cut into DNA strands and then insert, alter, or remove target traits. These might, for example, distort the sex ratio of mosquitoes to effectively wipe out malaria populations. Some UN experts, though, worry about unintended consequences. One told The Guardian, quote, you may be able to remove viruses or the entire mosquito population, but that may also have downstream ecological effects on species that depend on them, unquote. Quoting again, my main worry, unquote, he added, quote, is that we do something irreversible to the environment despite our good intentions before we fully appreciate the way that the technology will work. And, again, that article goes into, well, they would never do that. The the government would never study these things that, uh, you know, would potentially, you know, weaponize mosquitoes or weaponize insect populations. You're crazy for talking about that. No, like, they are doing that. They've been doing that. And they're continuing to do that. And that's another article to show. And here we have uh, another article from The Guardian called, it's uh, more than a year old, From 2019, July of 2019, House orders Pentagon to review if it exposed Americans to weaponized ticks. A New Jersey lawmaker suggests the government turned ticks and insects into bioweapons to spread disease and possibly released them. The U.S. House of Representatives calls for an investigation into whether the spread of Lyme disease had its roots in the Pentagon's experiment in weaponizing ticks. The House approved an amendment proposed by Republican Congressman from New Jersey, Chris Smith, instructing the Defense Department Inspector General to conduct a review of whether the U.S., quote, experimented with ticks and insects regarding the use as a biological weapon between the years of 1950 and 1975, unquote. The review would have had had to assess the scope of the experiment, And, quote, whether any ticks or insects used in such experiments were released outside of any laboratory by accident or experiment design, unquote. The amendment was approved by a voice vote in the House and added to the defense spending bill, but the bill still has to be reconciled with the Senate version. Smith said the amendment was inspired by, quote, a number of books and articles suggesting that significant research had been done at a U.S. government facility in Clory, including Fort Detrick, Maryland and Plum Island, New York, to turn ticks and insects into bioweapons, unquote. A new book published in May by Stanford University science writer and former Lyme sufferer Chris Newby has raised questions about the origins of the disease, which affected four, which affects 400,000 Americans each year. Bitten, The Secret Histi- History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, cites the Swiss-born develop- discoverer of Lyme pathogen, Willy Bergdofer as saying the Lyme epidemic was mil- a military experiment that had gone wrong. Dofer, who died in 2014, worked as a bioweapons researcher in the U.S. military and s- said he was tasked with breeding fleas, ticks, mosquitoes, and other blood-sucking insects and infecting them with pathogens that caused human diseases. According to the book, there were programs to drop weaponized ticks and other bugs from the air, and that uninfected unaffected bugs were released in residential areas in the U.S. to trace how they spread. It suggests that such a scheme could have gone awry and led to the eruption of Lyme disease in the U.S. in the 1960s. And then it says this article was amended on the 18th of July, 2019, to clarify that ticks are not insects. Yes, the anthropod uh, showing a tick that's disgusting there it makes me uh, squeeze just looking at that picture. But yes, uh, that's the book that we have here on the desk that it's a referring to. And uh, Chris Newby, what we're going to do here now, if as long as I'm not skipping too far ahead in the process, yes, is going to first a uh, little clip here just to show kind of the general, oh, yeah, well, you know, they wouldn't really do that, you know, and they're that's a cons- You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, right? And then I have a, a great interview that uh, I want to thank Ricky Verandas for sitting down with uh, Chris Newby from that book and that article that it was just mentioned uh, from the Guardian. And he goes over several sections, which I'm going to cover. It's quite a bit. It's a longer form that I'm going to go through. The whole hour view is an hour and 44 minutes. I'll cover. It looks like about maybe 40 minutes of that. Um, so quite a bit that I'm going to tack on. And then I did want to actually read through some of the book, but we'll have to go through and see if that maybe is part 2 to this series where we actually read the parts from the bitten book. Um, I only wanted to go to the top of the hour that I'm on today about I have about like 45 minutes left. So I will uh, cut into this and you know again just showing there that there's plenty of evidence and research and even that uh, bill that was proposed that I will need to follow up on and see. I don't, I don't think this went very far, but 400,000 Americans each year potentially harmed by something that the government created, and they don't want you to know much about it. It's always kind of this, well, you know, uh, that's conspiracy theory. Or when, it, when you get into it and you're actually trying to fight for your life or trying to fight for your child's life or your partner's life, uh, you'll, there's a lot of barriers that you come up against, and uh, that movie Under Our Skin that Chris Newby also helped produce. You can go view that and see the whole story of all the people that have been affected by Lyme disease. And uh, again, I will try to have some people on the show that might be able to talk more about this coming up that are more expert than I because they've been looking at this longer. So again, I'm going to go into the intermission now. I'll be back in a while. Uh, we'll either close the show out at that point and uh, come back and read. Some of the book, or we'll read some of the book today. Um, most likely, we're still only going to go for another forty minutes or so. So, in either case, we'll get through what we can. But there's there's plenty of good clips in this interview that I wanted to get to f- from Ricky, and then this uh, short little clip I have here from the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, so, thanks to you for watching the Bio Sci War TikTok TikTok Bio op, and uh, we'll be back here shortly. Thank you. <sighs>
1: My my friend Steve Ranella, he and his son got it, and the, the doctors didn't recognize it. The doctors, he was like, I think it might be Lyme disease. The doctors d- didn't think so. Then his son started getting Bell's palsy, so fa- half his face, and his son was little. I think he was like four or five. Half his face was going numb. Yeah, that happened, happened to my wife, actually. She had yeah. Bell's palsy at one time. Yeah. I think she got a flu
6: shot, she said, and then came home, she got Bell's palsy. Jesus yeah. Christ.
1: Yeah, it's a fucking creepy disease, man. It is. Because no one seems to know what to do with it. And, you know, they had a vaccine for a little while, but the problem with the vaccine was people were, and this is including my manager's dad, took the vaccine and got Lyme disease from the vaccine.
6: I I keep hearing this with vaccines or
1: even flu shot, like... I've heard People that get the flu, flu shot. shot and they get the flu. You know? I've heard that people get sick when yeah. they get the flu shot. But then I've talked to people that are vaccine people and they're like, no, you probably were already getting the flu and the flu shot that you got was the wrong one for well, whatever saying, flu right? was in the area. Well, I also I heard, know. too,
6: they give you the strain from last year and then there's the new strain this year. So it's not even really helping you. I
1: well, I think there's multiple strains each year. Mm-hmm. And I think they're basically just hedging guessing, their bets. Right? They're guessing. Yeah. I don't take flu shots. No, hell no. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I... I think they do work if you get lucky. Yeah, you well, get the right one. I'm not too I lucky. Know. I don't know. I mean, I believe in vaccines for sure, but I don't think that it always works. In in in, in the flu shot case, I'm not sure. Because yeah. like sometimes, sometimes they just get it wrong. Like they have the wrong strain. Right. Right. What do we know? What do we? No, I know. It's talking a about it's flu a flu
6: shots. fucking touchy subject
1: anyway. Some morons talking yeah, about flu exactly. shots. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but um with the
6: with the Lyme disease.
1: My, my wife uh, there's a conspiracy theory that that's the government. Put yes. that in the wild. Well, there was a conspiracy theory that it, there was actually, l- look this up, Jamie, because there was actually something about this they were talking about recently, where um, they were looking in, there was they were investigating the idea that Lyme disease was a biological warfare weapon that uh, accidentally got released. But this was through like legitimate channels they were investigating yeah. this. It wasn't like some fucking tinfoil hat job. They released it on the East Coast, I guess. Not not where they wanted to release it. (laughs) I think it got out. I think the idea is that somehow or another this disease had accidentally escaped their labs or while they were in the middle of uh, treating people. Is a tick the only way you can get Lyme disease? I believe so. Uh Yeah. And it's the ticks, I think it's deer ticks. Mm -hmm. I think it's places that have a high population of deer also have a high population of these ticks. And then when people get it it's less you know most of them don't realize they have it until it's too late yeah so you don't realize you have it and then you miss the early rounds of the antibiotics locker, yeah. w- which can knock it out and then you get this chronic state right. like jim miller has yeah. and your wife has yep. and yeah my my buddy uh steve ranella that had it he was fucked up i mean bad for psh, At least six months. When I saw him, he looked like he had lost, and he's a slim guy, but he looked like he's he had lost twenty or thirty pounds. And he was just said he'd just been dealing with the the Lyme disease, and it just killed him. I mean, not killed him, but just 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 really diminished his body. Yeah, Yeah, it's fucking it's a weird disease, man, because you you can't find anybody who doesn't know anybody who has it. Yeah, on the East Coast, yeah. Everybody knows a brother or a cousin or a wife, someone has
6: it. It's crazy. I, mean, I love running the woods and trails, but like in the summertime, it's like, man, you just I'm so
1: nervous to get ticks. Or my kids, I don't want my kids going out in it. Well, I think it takes 24 hours for it to set in. So like once you once you do come back, if you have a tick on, you just have to remove Check, it immediately. Yeah,
6: yeah so we do every time we go in the woods, tick checks.
1: How do you get them off you though? If like it's what if it's like in the middle of your back and you're by yourself? Yeah, I guess it's like one of those back scratchers or yeah. something. <laughs> like. Here it is. Was Lyme disease created as a bioweapon? Is this a legit website?
3: It's yeah. It's uh, how stuff. Well, how stuff. How works, stuff works. So It's not. Just it legit? Legit. Oh. It's not unlegit. Oh, no, that's uh, that's
1: legit. How stuff works is very legit. Is I just sort helps? of read
3: through the whole article. It's sort of unproven, but there are some people I believe that think that this is a thing. It just would be very hard to do, is what the, end of the article this. says. Look at
1: this. Ticks as weapons issue made headlines back in July 2019, thanks to the U.S. House of Representatives, Chris Smith, uh, R. New Jersey. Republican New Jersey who introduced legislation legislation directing the Department of Defense to review claims that the Pentagon researched ticked based Bioweapons in the mid 20th century the amendment passed Smith said he was inspired by a number of books and articles Suggesting that significant research had been done in the US government facilities including Fort Detrick Maryland and Plum Island New York to turn ticks and other insects into bioweapons imagine if those cunts Created a fucking disease, and now <laughs> the, everyone the, the, on the East yeah, Coast yeah, has it. Yeah. What the fuck? Because it's mostly out there. That's what's fucked up. Yeah, it is. It is. Lime isn't lime a place in Connecticut? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that why they named it Lyme disease? I mean, I think that's why they named it that. Yeah. Have you heard of the Rocky Mountain tick? In? Yeah.
6: Isn't that kind of the, the West Coast version of?
1: Well, it's Texas. It's. Uh, uh, um, I think it is, or the Lone Star tick. That's. Oh, what that's it is. different. The that, Lone Star one. It makes you not like meat or something. Yes. Alpha gal, alpha galactose. It does something. I think that's the the word. Um, it it makes you allergic to meat. Allergic to meat. To meat. Wow. Yeah. So you you literally go the rest of your life and you can't eat meat. You have to eat like chicken and fish. Shoot me. <laughs> well, like, what is that?
3: Yeah, the first cases of it were there in 1975.
1: Yeah, the uh, goddamn government. They're creating bioweapons. I'm not surprised. No. I mm-hmm. talked to the Soviet Union guy when I was doing that television show and he was saying that they, they had all sorts of bioweapons that they were developing over oh, there. Gotta be, right? Giant pits filled with anthrax. Like, like,
6: are there ticks in other countries? Like, are
1: Lyme disease in other countries? That's a good question. That's a very good oh, question. Yeah. That would That would, like, sort of... Explain a while well, we're right. in
3: Conspiracyville. Have you Uh-oh. seen the coronavirus stuff?
1: Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. conspiracies yeah. about it.
3: Yeah, what's a conspiracy? There's like a level four bioweapon facility opened in Wuhan. Oh, like, like wow, recent, not too long ago. And <sighs> oh, I, before the suggestions are online, I don't know, I'm I'm not saying it, the suggestions are online. Something might have leaked just like this.
1: Have you consulted with Sam Tripoli or Eddie Bravo? I, uh, <laughs> I, have, seen, I have seen tweets. I'll just say I've seen tweets. From who? From uh, Sam from or from, Eddie? I think Sam's retweeted some stuff. Oh, so. uh, of course. Of course he has. But I've seen other stuff online, too. Well, I savage. mean,
6: I think whatever news is out there, there's
1: always some conspiracy theory that goes with it, right? <laughs>
2: Right, so the the, next.
1: I, I wanted to go back to one thing that you said
0: that uh, is infuriating and I experienced it personally and I was so shocked. And that is uh, right after my book came out, uh, there was a Washington Post op-ed by a professor at a, at a distinguished uh, college in Boston who said, oh, that theory that, uh, you know the military weaponized ticks and the outbreak might be uh due to a biological weapons accident is completely conspiracy theory and and so i went through the this op-ed in washington post and i'm going oh my gosh he got so many things wrong so right after i i called the professor and i said hey professor uh i i noticed there are a few things wrong could we talk about it and he goes sure it's like a friday night he's probably had a couple of glasses of wine already and i said did you actually like read my book before you wrote this? And this is a professor who's a vet and he teaches biosecurity at this university. And he goes, oh no, I didn't read that book. I don't have time to read books. So here's a subject matter expert, a professor at a major university. And he he disses my book and he hasn't even read it. And this is supposed to be an area that he's on top of. So then I contacted the science editor at. At the Washington Post, and they said, Well, it's an op ed. We don't fact check that. But <laughs> so at least they removed the link to my book, but they did not re- remove the op ed. And, you know, I went and, and during this con- phone conversation with the professor, I said, You know, I said, well, Do you mind if I go through the four things you got wrong? You know, and so I did that. And I said, Well, do you want me to send the book so you can read it? And he goes, Oh, no, I just shred it (laughs) anyways. So, it was just like the epitome of closed-mindedness. And it turns out that that professor, both his parents had been in Army counterintelligence for their whole career. So, you know, counterintelligence, is sort of all about disinformation. And then his father had been a vet um, dissecting jackrabbits exposed to radiation from the Nevada nuclear tests so this is all online you know but nobody you know it's what i'm saying is how i'm a puny science writer i don't i'm not a professor at a major university like how are people supposed to know who's telling the truth you know and when i was at stanford oh my gosh i had the best editors and they would i would like do diligence and making sure everything was fact checked because the last thing i wanted to do was be embarrassed and be wrong but here's this professor he just doesn't care (laughs)
3: Yeah, that's a that's a huge issue. Uh, I I remember you uh you t- I, don't, I I don't know if you told the story on, on uh, that story on the last episode you're on or on another interview I heard you on, but I uh yeah without a doubt I remember hearing that and just being so upset because it shows how quickly uh, a book or a researcher like yourself can just be discredited without any real reason to be discredited. You know, somebody's gonna just think that okay she like. I shouldn't read this book or I shouldn't believe this, this, uh, researcher or, or whatnot. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, I know it didn't, it wasn't, I think we, do, we talked via email, uh, recently in regards to, uh, aren't they actually investigating tick viruses and, and, and whatnot, or, or did the, the bill not get passed. I, am you mentioned it in, uh, something about, uh, yeah, Chris, I, Chris Smith. I, I was, and
0: Yeah. So Chris Smith, uh, uh rep, uh, Republican from Congress in New Jersey, and he's uh, he he's representing a state where he's really at the ground zeros of that outbreak from the 70s. Uh, so his constituency is really suffering from all these tick-borne diseases. It's not just Lyme, it's a lot of other ones. So when he read the book, he just held it up in, on C-SPAN, which <laughs> lucky for me, and said, this book is really credible. And I think it's raising some interesting questions and we really need to investigate and try to get the the military to release information on you know what open air biological tests with live bacteria and live bugs were, were carried out in what areas so because that saves a lot of research dollars you know all of a sudden we know okay what germs were released where it might explain why we have hot spots in wisconsin and minnesota and around lyme Connecticut. And then also, know anytime the military released a biological weapon, they uh, had to have protections for their own soldiers. So they developed, you know, preventative measures um, like vaccines, uh, protective clothing. So it'd be really nice if that was declassified. And, uh, you know, I go into gruesome detail in my book that the government is not releasing these documents. I mean, some of these my FOIA's freedom information act requests have been in there for years and especially the ones from cdc and cia i don't know if i'll get them before i retire <laughs> so um it would be really nice so chris smith anyways uh wrote an amendment to the department of defense budget for 2020 and 2021 uh it was in the very final bill that was just passed well it's it, it was passed by both houses about a week ago. Uh, in the consensus committee, they removed the investigation into weaponized ticks um, that Christmas sponsored and a bunch of other requests just because a government investigative body that's looking into that says, we're just overwhelmed with all the investigations right now. We can't add one more on our fixed budget. And then that bill was vetoed a couple days ago. So it's out. Uh, But I'm currently still working on getting some of those documents in other avenues. And Chris Smith, Representative Chris Smith, has said he may introduce a bill outside of a larger budget just focused on that investigation because it's so important. So that, that gives me hope
3: yeah and the so the guy who who uh, who gets the credit for Lyme disease for finding Lyme disease i know you've told a story also i don't know i don't believe it was on my show but uh, he had opinions on if it was man made or or naturally occurring uh, can can you go into that story and and how you uh you came to find out about this confession for lack of a better term
0: yeah so willy bergdorfer was a swiss german researcher who was hired by the US government. Uh, he came over here 50, at the very end of 51 and worked for the NIH. And I, I believe he was hired right away to work on the biological weapons program because we had just uh, sort of gotten huge funding in 51 to, to build up our biological weapons program. Uh, and that's how he was funded. So he goes there to Hamilton, Montana, where the, it was the large, largest tick research facility. And he has a contract with Fort Detrick in Maryland. And that was the head of the biological, the offensive biological weapons program. And so his job is to like experiment with putting various disease diseases in various insects and bugs to try and weaponize them because the government decides that's, that is the perfect stealth weapon, you know, you, you drop a bug on on someone with an unfamiliar disease. And just like with COVID, since we don't have any, a population doesn't have any natural immunity, you have massive death and destruction. Uh, so, you know, Willie injected fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with diseases. He would see which ones stuck because, you know, diseases don't necessarily go into certain bugs. And then he would send it to Dietrich and they would figure out how to mass produce it and reliably weaponize it. So some enlisted guy can dump a box of infected ticks on Cuba. And they did that to try and kill the sugarcane workers and discredit Fidel Castro. So uh, anyways, Willie, uh, Willie towards the end of his life started inviting some journalists in. One of them was a documentary person and uh, a friend of mine. And he got Willie to say, you know, I in, helped investigate the outbreak of crazy tick-borne diseases in the 70s, late 70s. And I believe that the one of the germs that was discovered there was one of the biological weapons we worked on back in the 50s and 60s. So, but he wouldn't, he wasn't 100% fourth coming and all the details. So my friend, the documentarian, sent me the clip and said, what do you think? You want to help me investigate this? So for a while, we we dug in archives, went to the National Archives, where his files had just been uh, released, and we looked through the 33 boxes there, and the funny thing is there was like all the the details of his research over his 30-year career, but there was nothing about the Lyme disease stuff, which was weird. and there was a mysterious disease called the Swiss, he called it the Swiss agent. And I'd never heard of it, didn't have an official name. So I went out to see Willie and that's where he really, for the first time publicly said, "You know, I was in the biological weapons program in the fifties and sixties. You know, I did put, I I did stuff like tried to put plague and fleas. So the plague, you know, a disease incredibly deadly that almost wiped out the whole human race in various times in human history. And, and I uh, tried to mass produce ticks and mosquitoes. He put this deadly Trinidad agent virus into mosquitoes, um, the same type of mosquitoes that causes or carries dengue and Zika, and we're having troubles with that now. A lot of open air experiments. Uh, he said he tried to weaponize Colorado tick fever virus, which is also called American hemorrhagic fever does bad things to the brain so it was it was shocking and uh, but I sort of hit a wall because I couldn't get confer- confirmatory documents from the military saying this stuff ever happened they were burned at Dietrich at a certain time at least some of them uh, later on Willie who thinks he he had Parkinson's he thinks he got it from uh, a tick bite that he, when he was researching ticks somehow, he thought it might be Lyme related, but of course he doesn't know that. And he decided to donate a lot of his documents on his early research with Dietrich that had never been made available. And he gave it to a professor at BYU who tried to put it in a Utah archive. So he, this professor who knew I was doing Willie's biography said, hey, do you wanna have a sneak preview of these documents? And that's where, I really got the juicy information about the bug-borne weapon program. And that's what's in my book. And I tried to make it a really interesting page turner so uh, you can really put it in context and see how this weapons program just got completely out of control. And then uh, an accident with nerve gas in Utah sort of shut it down. But so that's, in a nutshell, that's the story As I got access to documents and letters that nobody had. And it really was an inside view on how someone who was trained to save people's lives from bug-borne diseases all of a sudden was tasked with trying to kill people with them. And then how it got to him in the end, and he decided to confess at least parts of it
3: yeah so he he never really said that lyme disease itself was possibly from a bio lab or whatnot it's one of the other germs that he was researching or
0: right so he claims that in all the blood samples he took around lyme connecticut and analyzed and and many of the tick samples there was this other organism it's a bacterium uh, a rickettsal which is really the class of uh, bugs that cause rocky man and spotted fever he was saying it was a close cousin to that he was told he shouldn't he shouldn't show any pictures of the ticks that had that in it sweep it under the rug in his early draft of his discovery article in science magazine he talked about it in the discussion section he says you know, there were, uh, we think that this Lyme spirochete is what's causing Lyme disease, but there were these two other organisms that we couldn't identify, and we think that could be part of what's making people sick. But by the time the final article came out, those two important facts, which should be in there, were not in there. So interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm hoping that my book does is get people to gene sequence what was really in the ticks so we know what that unidentified organism are. I mean, a lot of rickettsias cause disease in humans. So that's what I hope. And that will answer that unanswered question in the book. But yeah, Willie did not say the spirochete was weaponized, He, but there's plenty of documentation saying that the U.S., Tried to weaponize Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is the most deadly tick borne disease um, in the US. So, Willie isolated it there. Um, Ohio State did aerosolized tests with the rickettsil, you know, freeze drying the particles and spraying them on monkeys. And it had a really high mortality rate. And then, uh, Dietrich was brewing it in mass quantities for a pilot study uh you know in maryland so i have documents that show that whole chain but i don't have the documents that say oh we did a test with a simulant that's closely related to spotted fever which is I, i think what happened but i'm still working to get those documents
3: yeah it's uh well i told you i you probably don't remember because it was a while ago but i remember telling you uh, the story about my mother having lyme disease and that was like kind of the first time i really got got interested in it and really just exposed to the mystery of it of people not really understanding what it is what it exactly does it do what causes it all all these things um and then when i talked to you obviously it only made the disease sound even more scary and then <laughs> this summer uh, so my my daughter, I have a a, a five year old boy and then a four year old uh, daughter. This summer, she gets we find a tick on her. Of course, first thing I think, <laughs> days, right? So this is during the lockdown, so we can't. The pediatrician doesn't even want to see him, see her. Uh, they, you know, we removed the tick. Uh, we don't know how long it was there for, or whatnot. They're like, oh, you know, just wait and and see if you see the the ring and uh you know that which is a typical i guess when you know it's more serious or lyme disease or whatnot um well unfortunately after a, a day we saw the ring and we're like oh my god my, my daughter has lyme disease and mm-hmm. uh and so we're freaking out and um i try to stay away from antibiotics uh, i mean i don't take them but I, I i try to keep my family away from it um as much as i can because i know it can do some uh some damage uh some serious damage especially in and because when my mother had it i mean she still thinks she has tons of i mean I don't know when she's exaggerating or when she's not but literally every medical issue uh from uh, you know being overweight to diabetes she she links it all to lyme disease Uh, i'm not sure i mean i know it does some funky stuff to your body you know not just the lyme disease itself but how it's treated sometimes especially with her because she was so late my my mother was uh you know when she, she had it for such a long period of time that she was really in in some poor health uh before they diagnosed her and and she was on antibiotics for long periods of time um so i'm sure she you know it did some damage to her body and i know you have a pretty similar story yourself your personal story but um but the antibiotics surprisingly uh within i don't know, i can't remember how long they told us that to have her on antibiotics for i think it was like two weeks maybe um and it, it the ring went away she seemed to be fine she had no symptoms besides the what we could visually see And, uh, knock on wood, I think because we, we caught it early, it was treatable pretty fast and and, and successfully. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel that well knowing that we couldn't go because i asked i'm like hey can we go in and do some blood work to make sure it's completely out of her system oh no she's fine if you don't, if she was on it for two weeks and ring's gone i i I think i was a little just all the paranoia of being a parent and then knowing some of the history of lyme disease i'm like i want to make sure this thing is completely out of her system um but it's to me it's kind of fascinating how it can be such a scary disease but yet like for my daughter you know being a a four-year-old like in two weeks it's gone and it's just like oh it's gone no big deal you know it, it's like it's see it almost gives me this false sense of like it's not as scary as 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 it seems because look how quickly we just took care of that
2: i'm gonna skip ahead a bit here this part is interesting as ricky uh, you know explains that and then she uh, chris explains more about her disease uh, dealing with lyme disease So, uh, so you can now go watch that part, but I'm going to skip ahead, uh, to about an hour and 23 minutes here and, uh, get into a little bit more meat in this interview. We'll play another 10 minutes or so here as i jump ahead to about an hour and 23 minutes into the interview thanks everyone for watching
3: five hours of sleep and eating crappy food you know on the go and skipping lunch and and whatnot uh which isn't a, a healthy lifestyle so when you look at like any type of disease that could cause people who aren't very healthy to to die then uh, you know it's kind of not surprising but um i know i asked you right in the beginning so do you did, uh, did you uh, you probably answered this question i and i and i forgot what your answer was but do, do you think it, there's a possibility that this uh, COVID could have been a, a accidental lab, uh, just got out of the lab type of, uh, you know, bioweapon? Or or do you think it was, um, you know, naturally occurring in nature?
0: Well, there's no way to say that definitively. I mean, we know it originally came from a bat and there are some mutations. We It's just at this point, we can't say if it was a mutation that happened in the lab or just random. I mean, I think there were seven spots of the genome, I haven't confirmed this, but someone said there were seven spots of the genome that had mutated, which to me says, maybe there wouldn't be that many mutations in a natural thing. And the fact that it's so, the outbreak was so close to the Wuhan lab that had a history of um, lab accidents, well-documented history. So it, you know, if I were a betting person, I would say, oh, it probably was some sort of an experiment with the bat virus. You know, the one conjecture I heard was that they were working on um, an an aerosol, you know, nose-based flu vaccine. And they thought, oh, we'll take this virus and make it so that, it's called gain of function. We'll make it more able to latch onto your sinuses and get into your brain. And so maybe that's what they were working on and it got out of the lab. It could be, it's it's so hard to control viruses anyways uh it got out with a worker and then spread through the market because they had designed it you know to be inhaled really easily and the you know the fact there aren't that many diseases that make you lose your smell and taste so it's so and such an unusual presentation and long lasting uh it, it makes me suspect it was an accident i mean uh I wouldn't go as far to say it was deliberate because uh, if it was deliberate. I think it would be much worse. There, there are multiple outbreak points. I think.
3: Yeah. Well, I also know that uh, you, you've said like Congress, because of a lack of funding for some of these, uh, you know, b- bioweapon research. Sometimes they'll, they'll stage events or, or scenarios or attacks or whatnot, right? That that's happened in the past too, right?
0: Right. So the biological weapons program, they started to shut it down 68, 69. But before then, they had open air field tests, because there's just a lot of steps that have to happen to go from an ideal, let's weaponize a tick till to actually figure out, you know, they ultimately for plague infested fleas, they had these little canisters where they would pack it with, you know, just enough moisture and sawdust or whatever to keep the the fleas alive and then they had an incendiary device on each of the canisters and at a certain altitude it would explode and rain the fleas down on a battalion sized area. So there's just like a lot of steps and you can't just go from the lab to giving it to a crew member on an airplane. And so they, they would do, you know, it would go from like Willie Bergdorfer's brain to Dietrich and they'd iron out the details, how to mass produce it, how to package it. Then they would test it on uh, in a controlled environment like Dugway Proving Grounds right in the middle of Utah, in the middle of a desert. They would control it. they do controlled studies. They'd have scientists take notes. And then they might even do an open-air test on unsuspecting public without infected bugs. So they did that on the coastal Virginia with lone- aggressive man biting Lone Star ticks because they thought that's the perfect tick to drop on the Russians you know, it can live under snow and in brackish water, it's just the perfect bug, you know, so they did an open air test of hundreds of thousands of those ticks in Virginia and they made them radioactive and they put them in a a gridded field and measured them from months to years to see how far they travel because they could use a Geiger counter to tell how far they travel, you know, but they didn't think about, oh, this tick, we did this tick tick release on the Atlantic bird flyway and so those seabirds, those migrating seabirds go from Canada down to South America and all points in between and so they spread those non-native ticks on Long Island and sure enough, two years after those tests, Long Island had a horrible outbreak of those ticks and those ticks carry spotted fever and we had a lot of people dying with an unusual number of spotted fever deaths, you know. So it's like man's impact on the environment. We're upsetting things in these biological weapons programs, you know, that had no controls or safety oversight further disrupted the environment.
3: Yeah, that, that's crazy. And nobody gets in trouble for it. Like nobody gets punished. I mean, it's just the, the military, that's the thing about the military. Like I feel like there's literally no avenue they haven't explored in regards to getting the upper hand uh over other countries you know biowarfare germ warfare any of this stuff uh so yeah it's very interesting i mean that's why people say oh the military is working on this military is working i'm like listen i i i'll explore any of the theories because to me it just there's so many crazy things like like what you're stating uh that they'll mess around with to try to further understand a strategy or a method of having upper hand in defense and war so it's uh yeah it's, it's crazy but uh thanks chris i really appreciate your time i really appreciate um your you're just coming back on and sharing your your information uh where can people get your book where can people connect with you and uh any future projects you might have that you want to share with the listeners
0: yeah so my book's available through most bookstores and Amazon, and it's available in Kindle or audio version. Uh, And uh, I also, the film I worked on Under Our Skin is a really good overview of the politics of tick-borne diseases, and that's available for free on Amazon Prime if you get that. Uh, A film on Bitten, uh, this, this, the history of the Bugborn Weapons Program and Willie Bergdorfer's life is in the works, but I can't announce anything yet. It's still uh, in development, but that's pretty exciting. And hopefully there'll be some new breakthroughs in the research uh, that Bitten started.
3: Awesome. Yeah, I'll look forward to that and hopefully have you on when, uh, when that's released. I'm sure uh, yeah. that's still going to be a little bit from now but uh, you probably feel like i thought i was done i know i know you've said this i thought i was done with all these ticks and lyme disease and finding <laughs> another reason to stay uh to stay in this but you know you we need people like you who are are willing to do the research and focus on this topic because if not then uh many people like myself would just like oh yeah i know it's Kind of a weird disease. I don't know much about it, and just move on to the next topic. So, uh, it's necessary the work you're doing, and and I, I think in the process of it, you end up discovering a lot of other really interesting stories and historical things that uh, many of us weren't aware of. So, uh, yeah,
0: because we really need to learn from the past, and by the military keeping this secret, we're not we're not doing that learning and pro- proving loop, and and the tick-borne disease problem is just getting worse. I mean, even the CDC this year admitted that it's just it's it's just spreading farther and wider and uh, we're not dealing with it in an efficient way.
3: Has there been a lower case of Lyme disease this year uh, because of people not leaving? Do you, have you kept up with that? Like, uh, because nobody, <laughs> nobody seemed to leave the house uh, this summer. Uh, do, do you know if that had a positive effect on Lyme disease cases?
0: Well, I started calling the uh, CDC and a couple local health departments uh, for example, Massachusetts, and they said, you know, at CDC and Massachusetts, I had people say, we are completely overwhelmed by the COVID issues. We're just not even paying attention to tracking Lyme disease. So I suspect that this year uh, there will be a drop, an official drop in Lyme cases, but it won't reflect reality. It will be, you know, people aren't, there's no government manpower to collect ticks and track them. People aren't going into the ER to get, presume tick bites dealt with and so there'll be more a blip in chronic people this year but that's my prediction
3: yeah 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 well you see that with the flu the flu kind of just disappeared or whatnot and like you said that could be some of the justification for it too because they're, they're so concerned about this one issue that they don't have the manpower or resources to kind of keep track of everything mm-hmm. but um but thanks again Chris enjoy the rest of your 2020 I uh, thank God it's almost over <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay one more section here that i'm going to wa- watch on this interview so i'm just skipping ahead and then we'll come back and i'll uh, discuss what's being discussed here a little bit uh thank you for bearing with me this is the ripple effect podcast with ricky Verandas. you're watching the bio war and today we're featuring this uh interview from chris newby that uh ricky did thank you very much uh ricky for doing this and i'm gonna play this last um, five minute segment here.
3: Uh, you know, and then when that happened to, to my daughter, uh, I was just—I was really scared because I'm just like, because I, I was very surprised on how they didn't seem to take it as seriously as I was taking it. You know, in regards to like, oh, I just put my antibiotics, don't worry about it. And I'm like, what do you mean? The, we're talking about Lyme disease here. Like, I don't like how comfortable you are with thinking we're just going to figure this out in two weeks. You know, it's like it, it kind of scared me a little bit.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot a lot of what I do is like, I always get friends coming up to me at work or calling me. Oh, my kid got a tick. What should I do? (laughs) I start being a Karen. (laughs) Hurry, hurry, (laughs) put the tick in a plastic baggie with a damp piece of cloth, send it and get it tested because the tick testing is faster than the human testing. It's wrong. But that's the way it is.
3: (laughs) It is. So that that, so actually, that's a good way to, to, to end this. How would somebody, is that the right way to go about it? Put it in a plastic bag and you can get the tick tested and get the results quicker than you would from the child or, or the person.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, because the test isn't reliable, the antibody test, which is just your immune system response to the tick bite and whatever's in it. That doesn't really fully form until three to four weeks after you've been bitten. So that test is not reliable. In the first month. So if you get the tick, uh, you send it into a lab and there's a lot of places that test it for free or very little money. Your local health department, which is probably backed up this year, you might want to send it to a commercial lab, but uh, just Google that and they will do DNA analysis on everything in the tick. So in a way that's better than a vaccine that just protects you with Lyme disease. Cause all of a sudden, you know, if you have a ricketzal or tularemia, which is really deadly or, um, you know, Powassan virus, which is super deadly. So all those things, and and then hopefully it's negative and you can go on and not worry about it anymore.
3: Is that something I should be concerned about? Cause I did mention to the pediatrician in, or, or the, I don't even know who I talked to now, but if it was, a uh but I, I think it was a pediatrician in regards to, uh, if maybe a blood test afterwards, cause they, they're like, Oh no, don't worry about it. And I'm just like, well, I mean, I would, it would be nice to get that peace of mind. Is that something that people should do afterwards? Or, or do you think once you do the two weeks, if you catch it quick enough, two weeks of, of antibiotics, the, the, the ring's gone, no symptoms, it seems like, I mean, it is a four-year-old, so who, who knows, but it, it's a, uh, is that okay like are you in the clear or do you I mean
0: if you treated it early I would I would not worry about it uh if you have some weird symptoms down the road I wouldn't get tested unless you have some health issues really that would be just a waste of money I think
3: okay yeah well if that you makes sense. it
0: early, you know the main thing is you just don't want to get whatever germs are in the tick head start or let the Lyme spirochete sort of fester and weaken your immune system over time.
3: Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's, it's so crazy how, uh, how people just get, how many people get, uh, just misdiagnosed, you know, but I guess it it
0: shouldn't be that way. It's like been 50 years we should be able to figure this out. Uh, it's frustrating to me (laughs) a a lot, which is why I, I, I haven't given up you know, I'm just very curious. It's like, why, why is the government minimizing the impact of Lyme disease? You know, that doesn't make, why hasn't anybody analyzed the prehistory of before the outbreak? Because it, you know, it wasn't like it all of a sudden it was a big problem. There had to be a buildup, you know, so that's, that's part of my, you know, just my curiosity too. It's like, what's going on here?
3: Well, and then the stress you put on, on the healthcare system, because I mean, if you don't diagnose this correctly immediately, it becomes a lifelong issue for some people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the worst case scenarios. So I'm, you know, I do have an exaggerated view of the risk. I'm sure it's my bias.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then of course, with your personal experience, I mean, 60 grand and, and years of your life, you know, the, were stripped away from you uh because of a, a misdiagnosis so yeah it, it's wild but uh yeah yeah i'll definitely uh, there's like i said i think this is a very fascinating uh book that a, a lot of uh, friends of mine in the podcast community would be interested in uh talking about so i'll i'll definitely connect you with some of them and uh and then hopefully we talk again sometime in, in 2021 uh and we'll be we'll be talking about more uh positive news yeah <laughs>
0: hopefully there'll be good news on my research too so that'd be good but mostly got to get through this horrible COVID nightmare
3: (laughs) yeah yeah without a doubt but um oh chris thank you so much enjoy the rest of the year have a great new year's and uh like i said i'll we'll definitely stay connected and uh we'll talk soon i'm sure
0: okay thanks a lot ricky take care (laughs) Bye bye
2: okay so reading from bitten the secret history of lyme disease and biological weapons by the author that you just saw there chris newby uh from chapter eight just reading the intro 19 in 1953 the biological warfare laboratory at fort dietrich established a program to study the use of anthropods for spreading antipersonal biological weapons agents. The advantages of anthropods as biological weapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier, and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. That's the US Army Chemical Corps Summary of Major Events and Problems, Fiscal Year 1959 at Rocky Mountain Arsenal Archives. (laughs) Again, uh, being that this book is important, and I believe that the information that Chris Newby uh, and that you heard some of there goes through is uh, important, we will continue on with the reading for more of this book in the next episode. Uh, there are some other pieces I can definitely weave in, including uh, more interesting information from the book that we read earlier today in this episode, Lab 257 on um, the Plum Island research. So that being said, um, again, all the stuff that like that from uh, Ricky Barandis there or any of the other clips that were shared here will be available. For you to peruse in the show notes and you can go through and watch, you know, the full uh, context of those clips, not rely on my interpretation as well as the source articles, uh, the different various articles from the Guardian that were highly important this week. I think Uh, there's some research techniques on the uh, scientific papers that that I will uncover in the future on more like a technical deep dive of how to actually do the research episode that might be a section of the within the stones media network free course, which you can go and sign up for. Um, if you're interested in learning how I do any of the things that I do here on this live show, uh, some of the techniques I've learned along the way working with my clients and you can find that I'll just show you on the screen. Like go to my website, Tyler click on this, uh, get the, uh, course, sign up page. Once you click on that image here, and this is a completely free uh, course, which you'll get, uh, the entire free media production library, a mindset course that's in the works, uh, lifetime access. And I'm going to be continuing to add videos, tutorials, uh, quick tips uh, in the control room series, uh, various training videos for and I'm calling this within the stone's throw, because it's closer than you think to be able to get to where you're trying to be. And uh, a lot of what I do in Within the Stones Media Network and over with Autonomy and Autonomy Unlimited is help people that are producing content get their voice out there. So if you're interested in learning more about autonomy or still getting in on season five, uh, you could contact me directly. I could get you routed to the right place. We just kicked off last night with the Autonomy Meet and Greet Worldwide uh, Meet and Greet. And in that, uh, I'm trying to pull up here, doing it live, just uh, grabbing maybe a quick, just, you know, a quick little just peekaboo at what I'm talking about. When I talk about autonomy and the meet and greet that we had last night, I think I have some files here that I could share. This is like premiere. You've watched to the end of the episode. If you're still here, you're getting like the front row seat to this because this is something even people in Autonomy haven't got to see, which is why I'm not going to show a whole lot of it or maybe even have the volume on. There's Justin. Did not uh, you that. might recognize him from the control room in Grand Theft World. And uh, there's him giving his testimonial by chance enough. And there's Joshua Hill. Uh, he did a great job kind of helping Rich kick off the meet and greet last night. I better...
4: You know how to read and
2: write. Yeah, the volume's really low, so I'm just playing a little b roll from this. This is Kara, uh, she's giving her uh, feedback on experience and autonomy. Um, I'm not sure who this goofy looking character is on the screen, um, but apparently that's Tyler Bloyer, autonomy media production guy. <laughs> um, yeah so again just got to go round table discussion you know large call had about 70 people on there at one point maybe even more than that uh some people came in and shared their experiences graduates got to talk about how their experience has been in autonomy as well as like we got to meet some of the new people that came in the course that was really exciting um, I, I really can't believe how incredible the experience has been in working with autonomy. And last night I was, I was thinking, you know, I can't believe that it's gotten even better and how, how could it get better? And here we are, like, it's getting better at every year and every season. So it's, a, it's an amazing experience. It's not too late for you to get autonomy for yourself. So again, the, the doors are kind of closing up though. The doors are sealed. They're like putting locks on the doors. There's still a couple places I know that you might be able to squeeze through, I could probably fast track that. So if you're interested, just hit me up uh, Tyler at tylerblair.com, and I can get you routed to the right place to learn more and get yourself autonomy. So that being said, today's been the tylerblair.com live stream on the bio psyop, tick top, tick tock bio op in the bio psy war series. I might've said, yeah, bio psy war, tick tock bio op, a little bit of a mouthful. There's definitely more to be said along this subject. Uh, as you can see, we didn't get to the full materials today. There's way more on the on the project paperclip and uh, the Nazi connection into that that I still am learning about and uncovering myself. So uh, luckily, I can manage to stay a little bit of the inf- above the information that I'm going through and put it in a card and get it out to you and be able to. Uh, do it live. And uh, weekly, I've gotten into a little bit of a sync on Saturdays uh, Saturdays to be able to stream. You can even narrow down a time. Around noon, my time is a good time because it gives me time to wake up, get prepared for the show, get everything together, grab a bite to eat and execute. So today I'm going to head out, go get outside, go. Just, uh, ever since I've started researching this, I'm like thinking about the ticks all the time. <laughs> But it doesn't stop me from getting out. I live in a place where there's probably a lot less chance of getting any of the ticks and these weaponized ticks that might still be around. I have a lot of questions, like how do te- ticks that were weaponized in the '70s, for let's say, or the '60s, do they just keep passing the pathogens through their offspring? I'd imagine so. I mean, I'd imagine that like all those blood-borne pathogens or the various uh spirocats and spiralites and uh, things that are passing down through the blood or whatever ticks the the fluids of the ticks to their children but that, that's a good question right i don't know how that works so i want to learn more about that so i'll continue to do what i do and continue to research appreciate anyone who watched the live stream today i um, not always able to monitor the chat all that well, but it's not really, you know, these series aren't about necessarily the live interaction in the chat for me, but I would love to see some open source community sourced research. If you're interested in doing that sort of thing, hop into the TylerBloyer.com discord server. Um, easiest way to get there is probably TylerBloyer.com slash live. And then there's like a link to the discord. You can filter in there and then there's a bio war room where we could start to open source some of this research. I've already been reached out to some people in my local area that uh, happened to watch the show and they've provided uh, some excellent, you know, insights and information on things that I had not thought about in regards to the bio war and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, the premise here being that there there's really no the, the differences they tell us that are so in offensive and defensive and that somehow defensive is better than offensive, um, which may not necessarily be true, right? But this is uh, dangerous logic and uh, pragmatism that pseudoscientific research has led us to in the name where scientists, science is somehow detached from morality and ethics and has nothing to do with philosophy and it could somehow just you know if it's scientific research then creating chimeric viruses that could wipe out half the human population or more or just completely cause the the apocalypse is worth doing in the name of vaccine research and you know by saying all this I'm not like an anti vaxer I am not anti scientific i am very pro-scientific by asking these questions if the vaccine theory and application at the time makes sense to do i'm all for it but i think there's plenty of room to ask questions there's plenty of space to create to look into these things and that being said we are going to check out here for today i appreciate again your time for watching thank you for uh, making it to the very end congratulations Uh, I know that this material is not always the most fun material to go through. And it might go through a cycle of being scary and uh, unnerving and uh, depressing. But, you know, ultimately, enlightenment isn't always about a perfectly smooth, happy, you know, roses and butterflies path. But the end result of that can be less suffering for humanity and in general, I mean, even maybe just your immediate family and community could become, uh, more free and less, uh, less suffering in that community could be caused by your ignorance, by knowing at least, you know, about some of these things. And before going and just jumping right into having a Lyme uh, vaccine or something, or and maybe there is a possibility that you've, uh, contracted Lyme disease from a tick bite. You would, you know, know some immediate solutions that were dropped here in this episode that could save you from a lifetime of agony, by getting the right information in front of a doctor or a medical staff that you're talking to, to try to convince them, unfortunately, you know that you may be needing back uh, a test and a, an antibiotic prescription that is very important to get in quickly at that time, so you don't end up having, you know. But I'm not, I'm not saying that anybody that's tried that who still has an illness is wrong, or that, you know, um, that I'm right here because I obviously, obviously don't have the illness. And don't know. I personally don't know anyone. I'm living in the West Southwest, so I don't know. You know, a lot of people personally in the East Coast, but from what I hear, it's quite prevalent. Four hundred thousand people. These estimates will have to locate the source material on. Anyway, guys, I'm gonna cut it there for today. Thank you for watching the TylerBloyer.com live streaming show, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks.